Welcome. I am your host, Manfred, aka MMA Lock of the Night, Andrew Boy on Twitter at MMA LOTN. Joining me as always, we got my Canadian brother and we got my guy Cody Slavtic. You guys can follow him at CJ Slavtic on Twitter. And we are here propping you up for UFC Vegas 23, headlined by Marvin Vittori and Kevin Holland, who's stepping in on short notice. Only fought two or three weeks ago against Derek Brunson, but here he steps in for Darren Till, who apparently broke his collarbone or something like that. But nonetheless, we still get a middleweight scrap to headline this card. The second show on ABC. The first one was Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater at the beginning of the year. Really looking forward to seeing if this one can top that fight or at least that event but we got 14 fights on tap cody you ready for this shit what's good man absolutely we had 15 fights yesterday 14 fights today hopefully it sticks together but the, the bottom line is that we've got lots of fights ufc knows what they're doing they have tons of falls out every week whether it's the fighters got covid or his car man's got covid or these late injuries or whatever the case may be sometimes a guy scales a wall and you'll end up losing a fight <laughs> so uh there's a lot of craziness going on but as of right now 14 fights so yeah we'll we always say we'll do our best to just rifle through these babies hit the best spots and move on but uh you know the discussion gets flowing and we end up taking a little bit of time for sure, for sure. And we do want to give a quick shout out to everybody that's already in the live chat. Hopefully we have some more people trickle in. As you guys obviously know, the show is now on my channel, uh, temporary homework for, for the time being, but uh, we will definitely be doing the show on a week to week basis. Me and Cody are here for the long haul. We know how much you guys love this show and we want to continue to bring it to you guys. So go out there and spread the word, whether you go to the other live streams or whatever the hell it is, people are probably wondering where the hell the stream is. It's right here, 8 PM Eastern Thursday nights. We're always going to be doing it during UFC Fight Week. So make sure you guys uh, hit that like, hit that subscribe, do whatever you guys got to do. Hit that notification button, and we'll make sure that you guys are propped up for every single UFC event coming right up. So let's not waste too much time. Let's get into this 14 fight card. Starting off with the first one at a first fight of the night. We got Impa Kasanganai going down to 170 pounds, going up against Mr. Underdog, Sasha Palatnikov, who pulled off a big upset last time around over Luis Kosi, where he was roughly around a plus 350 underdog going into that fight. Uh, Impa Kasanganai, you know, like I said at the top of the show or at the top of this breakdown, going down to 170 pounds uh, for the first time in the UFC. He's all also gone down to Sanford MMA, another change that he's made in his career, hoping that he can rejuvenate himself after that highlight reel knockout, once-in-a-lifetime knockout from Joaquin Buckley back in October. Uh, a lot of people are starting to fall off the Impacasanganai train, but I still believe the guy is very skilled. You can't just write the guy off after one knockout loss like that. Um, should he have held on to the foot that long? Probably not. <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't want to be plastered over every single highlight reel you'll ever see in your life, uh, but... Uh, luckily for him, he's he's healthy. He's back, ready to go. And going down to 170 pounds, I think this this weight class could be much better suited for him. He seemed like a smaller middleweight to begin with, but now at this frame, I think he's going to be very good at 170 pounds. Stylistically, I think he matches up very well against Sasha Palatnikov. I think he's the better technical striker. He has a good dis or a good uh, understanding of distance striking, keeping himself at range. Uh, and I think that he's going to go out there and put on a clinic against Sasha Palatnikov, who continues to get disrespected by the odds makers, but like there's a reason it's not just because he's you know Sasha Palatnikov there's a reason we're going out there and, and making him a, a plus 200 dog a night in and night out so I'm going Impa Kasanganai the spot that I'm looking at is Impa by uh decision my only concern here is 
what is Impa's uh, cardio going to look like going down to 170 pounds? Because he was already cut up at 185 pounds. So yeah, we're going to have to see what the weigh-ins look like tomorrow, but also we'll have to see what his cardio looks like. At minus 105, I wish we got a better line on the Kasanganai by decision, but that's what I feel most comfortable with. How are you taking this one? Yeah, I'd love to just jump right on Impa Kasanganai, but there is a lot of question marks. One, he's coming off that highlight reel knockout. How's he going to rebound from that? Two, it wasn't just that he got knocked out in that fight. The entire process leading up, He's just really tentative. He's not letting his hands go. It's really low output. He's allowing himself to just, the entire time, is Buckley leading the dance. Didn't really think that he gave a great account of himself in the fight, and then he ends up getting knocked out. But mowing down to 170, my God. At least what we've seen from social media, he is shredded up, ready to go. This is definitely the weight class for him. He was never a big guy frame-wise at middleweight, but as far as his muscle mass goes, I mean, he's very thick. He's very well put together. If he does have a cardio issue at 170, you would expect that to be a little bit more. Tough weight cut, dropping down, that much muscle, that compact. So the later this thing goes, it could be a problem. Also with Sasha Polotnikov, man, he does have a good chin because Louis Koski had him out. I mean, he had him hurt. He was beating on him. He was giving him everything he had. And that's something that Koski does in all of his fights. He's always attacking recklessly. He's always putting pressure on his opponents. And obviously, more often than not, he breaks these guys. But Platnikov takes it. Yes, he has been knocked out one time, Munir Aziz. Big welterweight, my friend, right? Yeah. Big guy knocks him out. That's also years ago. He's full-time at Extreme Couture. You do see in the Koski fight one, he's resilient. He's a little bit durable. And uh, he's got decent cardio. He's got a good kick game. He doesn't like to get pressured and have to kick off his back foot. But in this fight with Kinsanganai, if Kinsanganai is a little bit tentative, you know, maybe Platnikov's able to just stay at range, use his kick game, use his cardio, get this into later rounds. And there's another issue with Kinsanganai. As much as this guy is heavily built and a great athlete, he's just, he's super, super green. What I mean by that is that the guy turned pro in January of 2019. So he's been professional for a little over two and a half years. Comes from a football background, great athlete. But as far as mixed martial arts experience, just not, not a whole lot on the record. Now, doesn't have any knockouts, right? Wins his pro debut by split decision. He has his only career knockout. It's his third fight against John Lewis, an oh no, not the legendary John Lewis may I add. <laughs> an oh no John Lewis from Florida. And it's a ver it's a verbal tap out, right? And then he's got a rear naked choke, a split decision with Tavorius Tubbs. This is six months into his pro career. And then he gets on with the contender series, right? They don't give him a contract after his first fight over Kalen Hill. He shows a little bit of wrestling in that game, but he's just too green. They don't give him the contract. Now he comes out there against Anthony Adams. Again, you see where he's really green, but he's a great athlete. Adams is a 34-year-old veteran, been there, done that. Second time on the show, you give him the contract. Beats Mackie Patolo. Again, Mackie looked good in the opening round, I thought, but Ken Sanganai outlasts him. Doesn't look great, but gets the win. And then the highlight reel knockout. So you see where it's just like the building blocks of a young fighter building up, building up. So I, I'm not 100% sure that I want to bank on this guy big time. Now, it's not a great line, but the fight to go the distance at minus 195, not great. I get it. It's less than 200, but that covers us both ways, right? You think Nsangana is going to go out there and win a decision, again, because on his record, as far as him fighting at 185 pounds, no knockouts. At 170, it could be a completely different story. But as far as his history goes, not a knockout guy. Plotnikov showed a little bit of durability in his last fight, showed that he could take a punch, showed that he has good cardio. So we, we believe it's going to go to a decision. You think Nsangana wins the decision. I'll just take fight goes the distance. But if I want to be a degenerate, sprinkle a little bit something on there. The Palatnikov by decision side of things is plus 460. Mm -hmm. So get out of the first round and start working this guy. I thought what we saw out of Palatnikov, the reason he was such a big underdog against Koski is what you had looked at his prior MMA history before jumping in. 
it, it looked really soft. It didn't look like this guy was good. But what you saw in his debut was like, oh, man, much better, much improvements. You know, he, too, actually played football in school. He, too, is a former uh, rugby player. He's a decent athlete. He's 31 years old. He's This is probably a more polished, refined version of him. But he's local to the Vegas area. Maybe he makes it happen. I mean, it's a long it's a long shot play at plus 460. Uh, but I think to play it on the safe side of things, you want to make some money. You want to slowly build up that bankroll. If I was going to take a safe prop on this one, be fight goes the distance, minus 195. Apparently, he's a uh, connoisseur of the greenery, if you know what I mean. Apparently, his quote is, marijuana just helps me relax, recover, feel good, feel better, and then I can start my day and just smash it. So. He's a he's a wake and baker apparently, uh, but uh, you know uh, I, I'm glad that we're both on the same side here with Kasang and I. But you are right; there are a lot of questions. One going down to 170, and how what it's going to look like, especially coming off of that devastating knockout from Joaquin Buckley. All right, let's move this train along. Next up, we got Da Unyoung taking on William Knight, who took this fight on relatively short notice. He was scheduled to fight Alonzo Menafield a couple weeks ago, I believe, on UFC 260. Uh, I believe him or one of his cornermen tests positive. He gets pushed back. Alonzo Menafield goes out there and. Uh, Von Prue chokes Fabio Charant that night, and now William Knight draws Da Unyoung, who's also his opponent, ended up pulling out. So luckily for them, they're able to match up this weekend. Uh, interesting fight, and I think it's I think the 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 part that I'm looking forward to with, uh, of this fight the most is the stare down. The way in stare down tomorrow is going to look freaking hilarious because we got uh, William Knight coming in. You know, I believe he's five eight or five nine, and you got Da Unyoung coming in at freaking six foot three. So, or sorry, he's five ten. I, I lied. Uh, William Knight is five ten, but still, Da Unyoung five inches taller than him. He's going to look um, enormous beside him. But what we know about William Knight is a is a shorter, denser guy, very strong. We definitely saw that in the Alexa Kamura fight where he's able to really impose his will, get that clinch game going, drag him to the ground, and kind of just grind him out that. Way. Way. And I'd be surprised if he doesn't approach this fight the same way, right? Uh, how is he really going to go out there and try to strike with Dao Unyoung with so much uh, distance to cover? Now, the thing I don't really like from William Knight is like when he does get taken down, he doesn't really have a get-up game. It's just, let me hold on to you as much as I can. Th that Rocky Edwards fight was freaking hilarious. Like, he's holding on to him for like two and a half minutes before the referee's like, all right, let's stand you up or whatever it was. Um, it, it's been numerous fights where we've seen that. The Cody Brundage fight as well, where he's just holding on to him for dear life rather than working, uh, getting an underhook or or trying to buck off the, 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 the hips or whatever it is. He just doesn't do that. He just just holds on and just hopes that the referee stands it up. However, when he is the one on top, though, he does decent enough work to stay active so the referee doesn't stand them up or anything like that. But I'd be surprised if we see him go out there and try to sling leather and trade in the pocket with Jung. I'd be even surprised if we see Jung stay in the pocket. Uh, you know, I, I think he'd want to go out there and keep the distance, keep the range, keep this at distance, and, and get his power shots going from the outside. However, I think we see William Knight successfully, you know, grab him, clinch him, push him up against the cage, drag this fight to the ground. And I think it's going to be a slow burn of a fight, which is why I really like the over one and a half. It's getting a little bit more juice now. We got minus 155. It was minus 130 earlier in the week. Um, that's the spot that I like most here. If you want to talk about it, a specific method of victory, I'd probably even go William Knight by decision plus 470 because that is hella nice considering that i've expect this fight to be slow paced and the further this fight goes the less likelihood of a finish coming from either guy i think they're both going to be taxed you know that the, the power is probably going to be off of their shots by that point in time and i'm expecting it to look similar to the alexa kamor fight for me it's either quick first round knockout for Dao Unyoung 
or we see a William Knight decision here, and I'm leaning more so for the latter. So I'm going William Knight by decision plus 470, but my favorite prop from this fight is the over 1.5 minus 155. How are you liking it? I hear you, man. I like the over one and a half minus 155. I think that's the play. I think you would also chase a little bit of fight goes the distance as well. Try to get some plus money out of it. Uh, it plus 165 is a fight goes the distance. And then, yeah, I mean, you talked about William Knight side of things. I mean, it's a big, it's a big plus money play. So it's something that you're chasing. I think he's a live dog in this spot. It really comes down to how Dung Young Jung's a, how his takedowns get, defense is going to hold up. And B, how his cardio is going to hold up. We've seen the Sam Alvey fights. His cardio was no good. Technically speaking, the third round was his best round, right? I mean, he came back. He dropped He dropped Alvey in the third round. He kind of rallied a little bit. Him getting a 10-8 on the scorecard is what ended up saving him and getting a draw out of the fight. But he looked awful in the first two rounds, and I thought he looked really tired early in. So I don't know if it's a bad weight cut. I don't know if he just didn't prepare properly. I don't know if it's, you know, pandemic-type camp at the time, and he just didn't give a really good account of himself. But if, if he comes in in not great shape, I mean, William Knight's one of these guys that's – he's heavily muscular as well, but he's got really good ring IQ. He's really good at pacing himself. I compare him to, like, a poor man's Derek Lewis because his get-up game is very similar, like you <laughs> say. He just, he just doesn't do anything, and then all of a sudden he gets up. Yeah. And when he gets up, he makes you pay. And you see that time and time again in this guy in, in a lot of these fights. And mind you, he has fought some lackluster competition at times. Yeah. So let's get that out of the way. However, you, when you go back, it's like he just he finds a way to get out of these spots, right? The Jamel Jones fight. Actually, we'll go back to the hardum Alcabec fight. It's his first fight on the Contender Series. He gets taken down a bunch of times by Alcabec. He outlasts this guy. He tires him out. He works him over. Wins the second round. Now it's 1-1 going into the third and mauls him in the third. TKOs him in the third. Good resilience. Good cardio, good ring IQ. I liked what I saw. They didn't give him a contract. They gave him a de developmental deal. So he goes in and takes a catch weight of 220, fights Jamel Jones. Dude, he gets taken down in the first round. Yeah. Doesn't look good against Jamel Jones. But what does he do? Gets, ends up getting back up and kicks Jamel Jones' ass. Knocks him on the first. Then they give him to Fawn Injiqui. You know, dude, Injiqui, it was a catch weight of 220 again. Uh, kind of a kind of a weird fight. Injiqui ends up taking him down, taking his back, uh, and, and just like, you know, TKOs him. No big deal. The Rocky Edwards fight, again, takedown defense is a problem. The Bunridge fight, taken down, gets up, beats him. It, it's always been an issue. Now, here's my question here. Would you actually expect Da Young Jung to go shoot a takedown? No. no. See, he's never attempted a single takedown in his UFC career thus far. Well, he tried to take Alvi down a couple times. Didn't work. But, I mean, for the most part, when he's at his best, the Kadi Sabragamov fight, he likes his strike. He's got a little bit of a submission game, I suppose, when you're that tired. The Mike Rodriguez fight was a nice right hand, step to the outside, like good setup. You can tell he's a comfortable striker. Six foot three, like you said. Fight metric lists him at six foot four, you know, long rangey guy. But wrestle, 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 wrestle. This guy's going to tire, in my opinion. His cardio's not great. And you just, you haven't seen that type of game plan out of him yet. So with William Knight, if he's getting taken down, yeah, problem. Finds a way to get back up and win, by the way. Like a Derek Lewis. Yeah. But 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 beyond that, what we saw in the Alexa Kmore fight is like offensively wrestling now. He can get these guys down. And and here's the benefit. When you're six four against a guy that's five ten, stand up, that's your benefit. When you're five ten and you're on top of a guy who's six foot four, that's your benefit. You're short, you're stocky, low center of gravity, strong hips, hard to move. Getting William Knight off you is going to be an absolute problem. Guy used to campaign at 220 and didn't look particularly out of place. 5'10, yeah, but just like so thick. Him at 205, again, thick. He's got to get that wrestling game going, 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 going. So if I'm not betting him straight up at that to go the distance, like you said, which I like, I'm hitting that over one and a half because I don't think that William Knight's getting finished in the first round and a half. And likewise, his game plan is going to be heavily revolving around wrestling this guy down, holding him down, willing, winning time off the clock. So, uh, so yeah, I'm actually on the same page with you. I'm going to go with William Knight. I like that William Knight by decision prop. Uh, my, my, my best spot here would be that over one and a half minus 155.
I think a lot of people coming into this fight are probably expecting it to be a barn burner. They're going to be sorely mistaken once they see William Knight shoot for that takedown within the first 30 seconds of this fight. All right, let's move this thing along. We got a, a great fight here. I'm actually really looking forward to this one. We got Luis Saldana fresh off of his uh, contender series victory over uh, Vince Murdoch coming in against UFC vet Jordan Griffin. We got uh, minus 135 on Saldana and plus 115 on Jordan Griffin. The way that I see it, I like Jordan Griffin kind of similar to the William Knight situation which is let's get that grappling going because at range you're not going to be able to strike with Saldana he looks really good on the feet very sharp with his distance striking being able to keep fighters on the outside really letting his hands go but the level of competition has been a little bit iffy his when he is taking a step up in competition like the Justin Lawrence fight he does end up on the losing end right you don't really have anybody somewhat notable under his record other than Vince Murdoch who I believe was coming off that extended layoff because he had some sort of weird disease or whatever it was I can't remember remember what it was but uh, even fighting Mike Santiago in RFA in 2016 gets knocked down in the third round. Even losing to a guy named Alex Wiggs Jr., <laughs> who's 3-2, and two, ending his career for – show enough, Alex Wiggs, apparently, uh, who's 4-3 and three now, who last lost to Anthony Gutierrez last time around. But uh, he's managed to string together four straight victories, including that contender series win, all of them via finish. Uh, and now he gets a step into the UFC. Has he fought somebody with the level of grappling as Jordan Griffin? Probably Vince Murdoch coming, you know, Vince Murdoch coming out of a uh, team alpha male. That's pretty much all they freaking train over there. But Vince Murdoch had such an issue with closing the distance because he was at such a height and reach disadvantage. Yeah, anytime he tried to step forward, he was getting binked by like with a jab or with a nice combination. Whereas Jordan Griffin is going to be at a one inch re a height disadvantage but a one inch reach uh, advantage so i think that jordan griffin will have more success uh get, getting a hold of luis saldania and trying to drag this fight to the ground but make it a really slow grinding fight don't let saldania get his strikes off you don't want to be all the way on the outside with this guy you want to be either in the pocket or up close against him in the clinch and that's where i think that we'll see jordan griffin really start to thrive now i know he's only one in three in the ufc but he's been going up against some really solid grapplers which is why he's not really able to go out there and showcase that uh, that side of his game to the best of his ability dan ige is very tough out chas kelly that fight was absolutely bonkers back and forth submission attempts for both guys reverses for both guys and uh unfortunately for jordan griffin chas kelly is one who ends up getting his hand raised that night and then he gets that weird guillotine choke victory over tj brown where i believe he was in like side control but still managed to muster up enough of a squeeze to put tj brown out who thought he was in he was safe he was not because he had to wake up staring at the lights that night. And then the use of Zalal fight L lands a couple of takedowns, but Zalal does a good job of getting back to his feet, gets a strike off, and then gets his own grappling and, and clinch game going as well. So, uh, very unfortunate a run for Jordan Griffin, but I think this one matches up well for him. Not to mention these contender series guys that come into the UFC as a favorite. More often than not, they shit the bed, right? There's not a lot of guys that are able to uh, sustain the level of success that they had on the contender series because they look so damn good on the contender series that they come into the UFC as a minus 200 favorite. In this situation, we got minus 140, minus 150. The line is closing as the week is going on. Uh, but people are starting to get privy to that. They see that Jordan Griffin does have a path to victory here. And the spot that I, so initially in, in the week, I thought Jordan Griffin by decision. That's probably the way that I'm going to go, which is um, plus 280. But I think we could possibly see him win by submission here too. Plus 490. We have seen uh, Luis Aldana get submitted, I believe, three times within his career against much lesser competition. And I think that Jordan Griffin could absolutely go out there and put on a solid place on this guy, clinch up with him, drag him to the ground, and get that jujitsu game going. I'm going Griffin here, probably by sub, like I said. 
plus 490 is nice, but decision is not too bad either. Uh, at that plus, I believe I said plus 280. Yeah, plus 280 range. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, you know what? That's why MMA is really a sport where you got to go out and train with the best guys possible, put yourself in the best camp, put yourself in the best position to win, and that's how you grow. Because Luis Saldana has actually been fighting professionally for 10 years, right? Made his pro <clears> debut <throat> in 2011. He's 30 years old. He spent literally his entire career fighting on the local Midwest regional scene. In fact, he's like an Iowa legend in my eyes. Because yeah. he, he beat Ramiro Hernandez, who was an Iowa legend, UFC veteran. He beat Chris the Mad Dog Mickle, an Iowa legend, former uh, Jose Aldo opponent back in the WEC days. Also lost to Jeremy Stevens a few times. It's like he just, he just hung out in the Midwest his entire career. His notable fights, like you mentioned, Justin Lawrence and Mike Santiago, another UFC veteran. And it's like he, he, he comes up short in these fights. Up until 2017, 2018, he's not, he's not doing anything. And then at some point, he decides to get in his car, pack up his belongings, leave Iowa, go down to Arizona, ends up a fight-ready MMA. And it's like, bro, he looks legit since then. He's one of these long-rangey guys. How many guys out of this weight class are 5'11", right? Yeah. He, he is a big, tall guy. He does get a decent reach on him. But, I mean, he's really crafty with his kicks, right? You see you see Murdoch. Murdoch just had no answer. And not, Murdoch's not exactly the most talented guy going. So it's not like Saldana all of a sudden just massively turned the corner. It's that he was just lost instantly with just like the amount of kicks that were coming at him. Obviously, ends up eating the front kick, but the guy's the ground game looked refined. He, you mentioned that he's on this little win streak and he's finished all of his opponents. He's actually finished all of his opponents in his professional career. Shows six wins by knockout, eight wins by submission. So, I mean, he's an absolute tyrant, a guy that's going to stay on you and try to be relentless. But one's got to imagine that the longer the fight goes, if you grind on this guy, that would be your path to hopefully break him down and, and get something going. But Jordan Griffin, you, you got to consider it. So you got one guy that's been fighting professionally for 10 years. He's fought a couple UFC veterans and Justin Lawrence and Mike Santiago. He lost those. He beat he beat the local Iowa guys who were past their prime. That's the only thing he's got going for him. Right. Jordan Griffin, on the other hand, he's like, he took a round over Dan Ige. He took a round over Chaz Skelly. He's competitive in all of these fights. And you mentioned that submission prop. I mean, that's something that's interesting to me too, because Jordan Griffin wants to grapple, man. Jordan yeah. Griffin wants to go and he wants to get that submission. And you see that in the TJ Brown fight where it's like, not only did TJ Brown stay in that guillotine a little too long, it's because he had previously escaped the prior seven guillotine attempts. Yeah. He was so sure that it was just like, yeah, I'm going to get out of this. I keep getting out of this. But what it shows out of Griffin is he's making adjustments. He's adjusting the grip. He's getting a better bite on it. And you'll see sometimes high-level guys, they'll flash it a few times. They'll flash it. They'll give you an idea like you're not in trouble, and then they'll sync it up. Yep. He's a guy that, again, he's fought in the better competition. He's been competitive against the better competition. He's durable, right? He can fight the 15 minutes. None of that all seems to be an issue. And I like his wrestling. I think that if he gets to his wrestling, you've seen him go out and take down a guy like Chaz Kelly. You've seen it in his last fight as well. I mean, even though he comes up on the short end against uses of the law, he does get his wrestling going. And when he creates these scrambles and he can grapple a little bit, he's good. Now, so the last thing I want to sprinkle on there is that with Luis Saldana, you mentioned he's been submitted twice in his professional career. And both of them are rear naked choke. And he's got this like long man syndrome where in these scrambles, he tends to give up his back. And that would work tremendously well for Jordan Griffin. So Griffin's not totally out of uh, his domain standing. I mean, the guy is at a Rufus sport. He has spent a lot of time striking. You have seen in a couple of his fights. I mean, he'll, he'll give you some flashes of striking, but him at his best, he needs to get on Saldana. He needs to drag Saldana to the ground. He needs to create scrambles. He needs to try to take the back. He needs to try to neutralize him the best he can. And so for that reason, I think that it should slow down the fight to a decision. Got a minus 165 fight goes a distance. Um, but beyond that, like I'm not even totally interested in that. I might have a little sprinkle on that Griffin 490 by submission and hope that uh, he goes out there and 
his back's against the wall, man, right? He yeah. needs to come out and have a win. And this is a guy that is emotional, but when he's on and he puts it together and he's feeling it, he's he's dangerous. So I think there's a live spot here. But I, I don't know how much exposure I want on, to be perfectly honest. Uh, shout out to my guy, uh, BP, or suggesting the under two and a half at plus 165 there is some money coming on it i know cody's a little bit more privy on the decision prop uh but i, I think that both guys are live for a finish right if he saldana is able to keep this on the feet and get his striking game going he could possibly knock out jordan griffin here but in the inverse if you got jordan griffin successful with his uh grappling he could definitely pull off that submission but plus 490 baby that sounds so nice to me <laughs> all right let's move on to the next fight here and i can't wait to hear your thoughts on this one actually i kind of know your thoughts on this one but i'm really looking forward to it Jack Shore versus Hunter Azure. We got uh, a heavy steam coming in on Jack Shore all week. He opened up at minus 110 at a pick him. Now he's down to minus 165. It seems like people are starting to do their homework. Hunter Azure is now at plus 145. I love this spot for Hunter Azure. You know what I mean? So, credentially speaking, Hunter Azure is the better wrestler, right? Went to college, did all that type of shit, but had all these injuries, which is why he wasn't able to really take it to the next level with his wrestling game. That's when he flipped his focus to MMA, and he had a really good start, right? I believe he went 8-0 until he ran into Brian Kelleher, and then he gets knocked out there, where you see the cardio issues start to add up for him, just as we as it did in that Brad Katona fight. Brad Katona had a strong third round, but Hunter Azure was able to get out of those positions uh, and stay within the fight so that he was still able to get the decision. But that Cole Smith fight, man, I had a little bit of money on Cole Smith that night because I was thinking, okay, again, Hunter Azure, slight cardio issues. Maybe Cole Smith can impose his own uh, grappling and wrestling and probably get the get the finish himself but hunter Azure survives that third round no matter the dominant positions that cole smith was able to get there i believe he had his back for a good two to two and a half minutes in that third round but you give me jack shore now you give me a guy that has proper cardio a guy that has a good pace and could have put can put pressure on his opponents i'm looking for that round three pop so whoever shouted it out earlier in the stream saying <laughs> what are the odds that uh, uh lock of the night is going to take a round three prop shot on jack shore you're damn right cash that ticket baby because this is one that i'm looking at i think the first round is going to be competitive right we're going to get jack Shore trying to go for takedowns putting the pressure on him and hunter Azure is more than likely going to stuff them but that pressure and that pace is going to start to catch up to azure that's going to start to slow him down and this might even be a good live betting opportunity right what if hunter Azure stuffs the takedowns lands a couple of takedowns of his own and wins that first round then we possibly get jack shore at plus money then i think that's where shore starts to take over He's, he wins that second round and possibly gets that finish in the third round and that's the 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 approach that i'm taking here now the level of competition is like insane it's completely different right hunter azure has definitely fought the better level of competition and jack shore that's not something that's in his uh, in his control he can't go out there and be like these are the guys that i want to fight um, so whatever he's getting, he's going out there and demolishing them just as he should. So yeah, he he even though his level of competition isn't great, he's still going out there and doing exactly what she what he should, and that's finishing these guys. More often than not, I believe five out of his uh 13 victories have come within the second or third round because the guy is just a buzzsaw. He just continues to go out there and break these guys. And later in fights, he's able to finish these guys. And that's exactly what I think we're gonna see here from uh Jack Shore. I think that we see him take the back of Hunter Azure later in this fight and sink in that rear naked choke and get a round three finish. So round three right now, plus 1,500. Go hit that shit. Even by submission is plus 310. Go hit that shit. I think that uh, Jack Shore wins this fight pretty handily. And, uh, you know, everybody's, the public's pretty privy to it now considering the fact that it's a minus 165. So, yeah, I love me some Jack Shore on this spot. I think he wins this fight uh, round three. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, listen, I like Jack Shore as well. I think he's a real deal. He's one of these Welsh prospects that is just, he's got great wrestling. He's got great grappling. And, but the 
beyond all that, they're super durable and they got a great gas tank. And he just leans on you, grinds on you. And that's why it works good for a third round submission prop, right? Because you go for that second round finish or that third round finish. Jack Shore doesn't finish a whole lot of fights early. He grinds you down and then is able to take you out. And you see that a lot of these guys, whether it be break, uh, Brett Johns, you know, he had a similar style where it's like he's a very durable guy, good gas tank, and just had like a grinding type pace that he put on guys. I think he'll have a lot of success in Bellator, right? You saw Mason Jones comes in, debut against Mike Davis, hell of a debut to make against a guy. And it's like, man, super durable and just grinds on you by any means necessary. Jack Shore's got that same ability. He's got a lot of self-confidence. He's got good wrestling ability, good credentials. As far as this just being a wrestling match, yeah, Hunter Azure, like you said, he's got the credentials in that he went to junior college. You know, he was a NAIA standout, and injuries prevented him from going beyond that. You see him on the Contender Series. His wrestling looked on point. Technically speaking, by the numbers, he only goes 4-4-11, but it was chain wrestling, right? That's why he racked up a lot of attempts. I liked a lot what I saw out of him with that chain wrestling game. Then he comes to the UFC, and surprisingly enough, he, he didn't try to wrestle Brad Katona at all. And so he gives up three takedowns to Brad Katona. And see, that's interesting because Brad Katona never wrestled in elementary school, never wrestled in high school, trained out of Manitoba for the majority of his, of his adult life, and then eventually left the confines of Manitoba to go to SPG Ireland, where I'm sure his wrestling has not been short up none. And yet he goes out there and he does take down Hunter Asia three times. Uh, he had a little bit of success in that realm, but Asia gets the win over him. Asia against Brian Kelleher, again, he opts not to wrestle. But his striking looked well improved, very tight, very crisp. That liver shot to the body, nice, hook straight, fast, very athletic guy, moves well, still only 28 years old, liking what I'm seeing, and then cardio just falls right off a cliff. That's the first time you see cardio being an issue. But I, I, I chalked it up to, dude, you're not a striker, you're a wrestler. Just go back to the wrestling, you know, like wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. Striking might have taken something out of him. But seeing him get knocked out like that, seeing him get tired like that, not a great look. So now you get the Cole Smith fight. Surely he's going to go out there and wrestle Cole Smith, and he does. But again, he gives up two takedowns to Cole Smith. He gets tired, and eventually in the third round when he gives up his back, I'm not going to say he was close to getting a rear naked choke, but like he's just holding on and just hoping for the best, man. Like uh, It wasn't exactly a great spot for him. N now you have Jack Shore. Now you have a long layoff, actually, and, and then you get Jack Shore. I think it's going to be a problem. I think in the first round, it's going to be close and competitive. If you didn't like that minus 165 on Jack Shore, if, if you didn't get it earlier in the week, of course, look to bet it live. I think Hunter Asia is going to be live in that first round. I think his striking is going to be on point. I think he might beat Jack Shore to the punch. Jack Shore is striking not very good, let's be honest here. But the wear and the grind and the relentlessness should be able to be enough to tire Hunter Asia, steal round two, take round three. If you can get it, if you can get it after the first round, Perfect. If it's 1-1 going into the third, I'm feeling really good about our chances. If it's 2-0 going into the third, we're going to need that submission prop. But Locke's got the third round submission prop, so if it does come through, we're going to be happy all around. But I would prefer not to be down two rounds going into the third. But I, I agree with you. I think he gets the job done. I think he's a tough kid, and he's only improving. So sign me up for some Jack Shore. Even if he's down 2-0 going into that third round, you got to believe that Hunter Azure worked his ass off to win those first two rounds, and he's going to be sucking win in that third round. So maybe even a little sprinkle for that going into round three to see if Hunter uh, or sorry if uh, Shore actually gets the, the the finish there wouldn't be that bad of a look. So uh, yeah, speaking of round three props, last event baby, 
Mark Andre Barrio coming through with 11 <laughs> seconds left, baby. Let's go. Yeah, Let's you're, go. Dude, you're you're okay. You got a good thing going here. So you're a beast on these third round props, right? You even hit a couple second round props as well. Yeah. But, uh, but Maro, like, Manon Ferriol, what's good? <laughs> dude, you're absolutely crushing in that regard. And see here, we got a nice little dynamic here. Some might call it a greasy theory, right? I would pay good money for this. If Jack Shore's down two rounds going into the third, I would pay good money just to have James Krause just go in the cage. And he's there with Julian Marquez. He's in the building. Just just go in and just give him a little pep talk going into the third. Works every time, baby. James Krause, third round coach of the year. Let's do it. Let's do it. We'll be talking about Julian Marquez later on this card, so I can't wait to, to break that down with you. But let's keep this thing moving on. We're getting into the fifth fight now. We're getting into shit show sh city, baby. Jorgen DeCastro versus Jarges Danho. Jarges Danho, most of you guys probably don't even know who the hell he is since he hasn't fought, I believe, since 2016 or, or 2017. It's been a long time since we've seen him in the cage. The guy's dealt with. You saw the suspensions, whatever you want to call it, uh, a bunch of injuries and all that. But uh, I don't I, I don't know anybody that was like, you know, really excited to see this guy back in the cage. Let's be honest. So we got minus 310 on Jorge DeCastro, plus 255 on the Man Mountain. When you have a nickname like that, you can't be fighting like my guy, Jarges Dano. Definitely not. Somebody on one of my earlier streams this week called him the Man Pudding instead of Man Mountain, and I absolutely agree with him. So Jorge DeCastro, uh, you know, going into this fight, I'm like, I don't really remember how Dan Ho fights, but why the hell is Jorgen DeCastro minus 300 against anybody again, especially how we've been seeing him look the last couple of fights. Then you dig into the Jarges Dan Ho tape and you're like, oh, okay, that's why. I, I completely understand. Wow. I completely understand. Uh, but still, Jorgen DeCastro leaves so much to be desired. Now, with his back against the wall, though, I wonder if he's going to make the adjustments that he needs to. Like, is he going to come out with that killer instinct that he had going into the Alton Meeks fight, right? I'm sure he felt disrespected as hell coming in as a plus 400, plus 500 underdog in that fight. Then he goes out there and lands. I think it was only three or four leg kicks that ended up crippling Alton Meeks and uh, making him lose that fight. Uh, so you definitely know that Jorgen DeCastro has some pop in his leg kicks. So get back to it. Like we saw it in the Greg Hardy fight a little bit. He threw it in the first round, but then second and third round, he was completely flat. We saw almost no output from the guy, and he just gave that fight away. Same with uh, his next fight against Carlos Felipe. Very flat, letting Felipe dictate the pace, letting him get outpointed, volumed. And that was very demoralizing to watch, especially if you had Jorgen Castro as a minus 250 favorite going into that Carlos Felipe fight. You're probably kicking yourself like, oh, what the fuck am I thinking? Um, but I still think he wins this fight, right? Dan Ho has two minutes to win this fight. He has power, I'll give him that. But more often than not, he's going to have to drag fighters to the ground and really uh, start to ground and pound them. That's how he gets these, these early finishes. He just bulldozes these guys. There's not much technique. It's just his big physicality that he's able to actually like drag these guys to the ground and get that TKO finish. Jurgen Castro seemed like he had decent takedown defense, especially in that fight against Alton Meeks, a guy that had that solid takedown uh, threat. But Jurgen Castro was able to keep the fight on the feet, get his hands going, and then we obviously know about that Justin Taffa fight. Beautiful walk-off knockout in front of uh, Taffa's home country as well. That was uh, very, very uh, exciting to watch as a fan. But uh, in terms of how they match up stylistically, I think Jorgen DeCastro still has the better technical striking. I think he has the better gas tank. Let's be honest, it's not the greatest, but it's still better than what we've been seeing from George Stanho. And as long as DeCastro doesn't get DQ'd here, I feel like he wins this fight. He either goes out there and starches him in the first round, or this is a, another long drawn out fight kind of like the carlos Felipe fight but i think that we'll see a little bit more from uh jurgen de castro the only thing that scares me is if we don't get that volume from de castro and we just get like a three or four uh bursts of energy from dano moving forward and landing some good shots and then he steals the fight somehow but i just can't 
you know, there's a reason I call this fight a shit show fight. I can't bet either side confidently here. The spot that I like, the over one and a half plus 100, not too bad of a look. Um, you're, you're asking for trouble parlaying. Uh, DeCastro at minus 310, though. That, that, that's just way too wide of a line here. So uh, I'd like DeCastro. DeCastro round one, obviously, is a possibility for me. That's plus 150. Or DeCastro by decision is closer to plus, uh, what is that, plus 500, I believe. Yeah, plus 500 is what I saw. I don't know if he has the power to finish Dan Hole late. Uh, I'm not sure. But I'm going DeCastro here. Don't like the money line. I'll take the over one and a half instead. Uh, and uh, that, that decision prop doesn't look that bad either. How do you see this one? Yeah, I mean, I would have to assume that Yargis Danho is somebody in the upper echelon of the UFC's management's like best friend because like I have no idea how after four and a half years this man still has a job. You know me, man. I, I am an absolute fan of the sport, a historian of types, know these guys, know their backstories, been following the sport for well over a decade at this point. It, very familiar with Yargis Danho. When I saw he had the announced fight, and over the years he had been linked to a couple fights, but they never end up coming through. When I saw his line to the fight, I was like, no way. Danho's finally back. He must have done something on the regional scene to earn his way back. <laughs> no, no, no. Hadn't done shit since the Christian Colombo fight. Yeah. The Danish Muay Thai champion Christian Colombo. In a fight that it was this so greasy how he got out of that one, right? Then you go back and you watch the Daniel Malanchuk fight. Oh, man, so greasy against Daniel Malanchuk. This guy's no good. He had been fighting professionally for four years. Until that Christian Colombo point, from as a pro till his last pro fight, four years. And now he's been gone from the sport for four and a half years. So is this just recipe for massive disaster? This guy's just got way too long of a layoff. He's absolutely shot to bits, potentially. Or is it possible that he comes back as a much better version than that guy that we saw? Even a slightly better version of the guy we saw should be competitive against Jorgen DeCastro. You mentioned Jorgen DeCastro's cardio now. You know, you thought it was better and he had that advantage. Dude, all you got to do is go back and watch Jorgen DeCastro versus Felipe Silva. And all he's doing to him is just hugging him. Well, the ref has got to warn him, like, dude, stop. What are you doing? He is so gassed out in that third round. He's just massively tired. And so that's that's a bit of an issue with Jorgen DeCastro. Just bear with me on this, right? The guy's two and four as an amateur, right? As far as an amateur record M MMA goes, not particularly good. He's listed at between 5'11", 6 feet tall. He's not really a big heavyweight. Used to fight at 205. Has a couple losses to William Knight. Perfect. Okay. Goes pro. Pro debut, 0-2. Second fight, 0-2. 3-1, Now he gets a contender series fight. To this point, he's done nothing. Okay, He's, he's crushed a couple cans in the regional scene. He had a bad amateur record. He's, he's an undersized heavyweight. But he gets a massively huge underdog against Alton Meeks, a guy that never got to this level, let's be real. And he scores as this huge underdog ticket. So now he gets the Toffa fight, right? This is a great spot for him. He goes out there. He wins over Justin Toffa, who is a relatively unknown 3-0 fighter at the time out of New Zealand. But gets the win over Toffa. Another nice spot. Another knockout. And now he's like everybody's darling. Like You got a very reasonable price versus him versus Greg Hardy. Made no sense. I'm all over Greg Hardy in that spot, right? And just nothing happens. He does nothing. 25 significant strikes landed. Hardy just leads the dance. Hardy shows six foot four, right? It's six foot five, actually, with Hardy. Big, long, rangey, athletic guy. It just shows that, like, this dude's too small. He's a heavyweight, too small. Doesn't close range very good. That's why he likes to rely on the, on the leg kick. So then you get his next spot against him. They, they gift you a huge underdog press on Carlos Felipe. And again, it's like Jorgen DeCastro just doesn't got it, man. Tires out quick. Uh, didn't have a great game plan. Undersized for the division. Not a great spot for him. And now they're trying to feed you him at minus 300. So, like, I get that they're doing it because it's Yargis Dano. I get that. Get that. My thing is, it's like, I can't pay. They're heavyweights, middling heavyweights. See this all the time. 
And beyond that, like, yeah, yeah, he needs that first-round knockout. And with Dan Ho, has he shown durability issues? No. Nah. He's got a terrible gas tank himself. But, like, I don't – I think that over one and a half, like you mentioned, that's my spot. Plus 100, over one and a half, really like that. Because I think Jorgen DeCastro, if he's going to take Dan Ho out, it's going to be late in the second into the third. Dan Ho's just way too tired. He cripples over. Meanwhile, Jorgen DeCastro, not great gas tank as well. So Dan Ho maybe put some pressure on him. One thing that I did notice with Dan Ho back in his two fights prior, the Omelanchuk fight and uh, the Christian Colombo fight, is that he would just fire an overhand right and just try to get into a single leg and just scoop you up and muscle you to the ground. If he just goes out there and just tries to go short shot, close the distance, get a hold of Castro, tries to peel him to the ground, this would be like one of those slow heavyweight fights. Everyone loves the fast heavyweight fights, quick knockout, you know, the, the big the big boys. But the other side of the coin is those bog of a heavyweight fights where both guys are tired five minutes in. There's a lot of clinch work. There's a lot of grappling. Neither guy gets a significant edge. I, I'm three three to one, too big of a price tag for DeCastro. I think that the move here is you take the over one and a half, and I also marked that I didn't mind that uh, fight starts round three, plus 155, right? Let's get two rounds in, not the over two and a half. The fight starts round three. We're going to get a first round in, we're going to get a second round in. And the third round, it's possible somebody topples over. But let's just get to that third round, plus 155. I like that. I'm right there with you. This could be a slop fest, absolute slop fest, if we don't get a quick KO. So just be ready to sit through something that's going to be very painful. I promise you guys. All right, let's move on to the next one. And we got another contender series uh, alum coming, making his UFC debut. We got Ignacio Bahamondes versus John McDessie, who's been in the UFC since, I believe, UFC 124. That was the one where they had broken the attendance record, GSP versus Josh Koscheck, way back in 2010. And I'm very much looking uh, you know, looking forward to seeing how Bahamundes is able to take on this veteran here. So another fight, similar to William Knight versus Dao Young, where you're going to have an, a clear discrepancy in the height and reach here in favor of Bahamundes. He's one of the bigger guys at this division, just is so long and rangy, and has a really good uh, sense of being able to keep his opponent at distance now there are times where fighters are able to crash forward uh like the last loss that he has on his record uh i'm just going to pull up that guy's name real quick but uh he he did struggle when guys were actually pressuring him and staying in his face salvador Batera is the guy's name and that was in november of 2019 and combate where he lost that fight via decision now he comes back wins a split decision over chris uh brown on lfa and then gets that call up to the contender series uh and gets that first round or sorry second round front kick knockout over edson gomez who another guy he had completely outsized that fight didn't even look like it should have been sanctioned to be honest even though edson gomez was six and one going into that fight uh but bahamundes was just having absolute success from the outside just letting this guy up with knees uh long punches kicks up the middle and then eventually that front kick that puts his lights out beautiful striking display from him he actually comes out of that valley training system where uh uh Bilal muhammad trains as well up there in chicago and uh you got to believe that he has some good uh training partners and th this is a guy that Bilal muhammad has kind of been tooting his horn for a while now saying that this guy deserves to be in the ufc and all it took was one win in the LFA for him to actually get, get called up to the contender series. And then he has that very favorable fight where he's able to get that for a uh, very impressive knockout and get signed to the UFC. So yeah, he's going to be at a huge experience disadvantage here going up against John McDessie, who's seen like all different types of fighters, all levels of fighters. This guy was even in the cage with Donald Cowboy Cerrone at one time. It was just crazy to think of all the guys that McDessie has fought over his illustrious UFC career, where he's never been able to really crack the top 15 or the top 10. Cause he's, he just, 
doesn't seem to make the improvements, right? He seems to be the same guy that we saw when he fought uh, back at UFC 124 to what he does now. The only difference is he has a wealth of experience under his belt, and he's trained uh, training camps a couple times, right? He went to TriStar, then he hopped out of TriStar. Then he went back to TriStar. Then he went to, I believe, Rufus Sport. Then he went down to the MMA lab. But nothing changes, like the Francisco Trinaldo fight. He's still doing his, you know, kicking from the outside and not really doing too much damage. And then you have Francisco Trinaldo closing the distance and landing the bigger, more impactful shots that the judges obviously saw and they scored more for. Even the Jesus Pinedo fight. I wanted to pull my eyes out of my head watching that fight because it was so frustrating to watch just uh, John McDessie just laying on that lead leg kick the entire fight and nothing else happening. What is he going to do here to try to close the distance against Bahamundes without eating some big shots on the way in? That that's that's my that's what I. I'm confused about how McDessie actually wins this fight. Is he going to go to grappling? How, when's the last time you saw John McDessie grapple? Is he going to get it into the clinch with Bahamundes? I just don't see that happening. So, yeah, I do favor Bahamundes here. I do think he's a little bit too big of a favorite, though. As a guy coming off the contender series, only a two-fight winning streak, has faced adversity on the regional scene. Um, but it's hard for me to see what kind of game plan McDessie is able to muster up to go out there and beat a guy like uh, Bahamundes. So uh, the two spots I like for Bahamundes, initially I took him to win by decision where he just stays on the outside and just paints a picture on McDessie's face, plus 175, not too bad of a line. Uh, but there is an opportunity for him to get the knockout too, which is plus 240. Um, I'm leaning more so the de decision. I don't think he wants to overextend himself too much, especially in his UFC debut here uh, against an experienced guy like John McTessie that can definitely take advantage of him if he slips up. But I do lean Bahamundes here. Uh, very tricky, though. You got to be careful with these minus 190, minus 200 contender series guys because they look amazing on the contender series. But once they come to the UFC, sometimes they shit the bed, just like Luis Aldana could possibly do earlier in this card. But Ultimately, I will go about Mundus. I'll go with him to win by decision. Plus 175 is the line that I like. How are you seeing this one? Okay, you know what? I, I just This is another spot where I'm looking at a dogger pass situation. I would lean McDessie. It's that there's so much to factor in with McDessie. One, he's coming off of a year-long layoff due to like a massive ACL tear, right? So he has to get reconstructed surgery on his ACL. And uh, apparently, he's only really been back in camp for like six to eight weeks leading into this fight. So I don't think we're going to get the best version of him. And he's going to be a very – he's going to need to be at his best – if he's going to go out there and beat Bahamondas. But but Ignacio Bahamondas has got no experience, like we talked about. He's a guy that's just very light for uh, for, for big-name opponents. You look at his record, I mean, he mostly spends it on the uh, on the regional scene. No notable guys, right? Loses to Preston Parsons and Titan FC. Fights Matt McKinnon, gets outgrappled. Both those fights, outgrappled, submitted. The Salvador Becerra fight, outgrappled, right? Loses a decision. He seems to have some grappling deficiencies. He's still only 23. He's a good striker, but he's a work in progress. Now we get that Chris Brown fight for LFA. He wins a split decision. It's a really close fight. It sh clearly shows that this kid needs a ways to go. And he only fought a contender series two months after the Chris Brown fight. Fights on contender series, gets a very, 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 very favorable matchup against Edson Gomez, knocks out Edson Gomez. You want to talk about his power and how he might be live to knock out John McDessie and he's going to go out there and potentially pick apart John McDessie and paint his face like you said, right? He had knocked out Chris Brown. It was a close competitive split decision. He didn't knock out Becerra. He couldn't knock out Hugo Flores. He, he, the only knockout he's got is over this Javier Reyes Saucedo was 0-3. He knocked out his other guy, 3-1. and And then again, it's some more it's some more decision props, right? That This is over the span of like five or six years. So even though he's like, what, 17 at the time, 18 at the time, I know he's come a long way. His striking is getting better. It might be a little bit too much too soon. Now, you want to talk about Mac Destiny and his striking credentials. He's super risk adverse. That's my problem with him. That's why I don't like betting him. His output's not really there. He's not willing to step into the fire. It goes back to the Donald Cerrone fight. He gets his jaw broken. 
He basically looks at the ref, calls a timeout. He's like, it's a, it's the no moss of MMA. Yeah. He's like, fuck this. And then after that, like seriously contemplated retirement. Comes back to the UFC and eats the wheel kick from hell from Lando Venata. Mm. And now he's really second-guessing himself. He leaves TriStar and he ends up going to Rufus Sport. And you see he's got this risk-adverse style, but he's figuring out how to make it work, right? How to win. He's got good takedown defense. There's a career percentage of 88%. And beyond that, has only been taken down by two guys over the last 13 fights. But here's a crazy stat that I actually was surprised myself. He's outstruck his last 13 opponents. That includes his last loss against Francisco Trinaldo. He outstruck him 67 to a 55. He outstruck Ross Pearson 131 to 79. That was an outlier for him because he doesn't usually throw that much. He knocks down and outstrikes Abel Trujillo. He, he outstruck Landon Venata prior to getting knocked out. He outstruck Medi Baghdad. He outstruck Yancy Medeiros 114 to 80. And he outstruck Donald Cerrone 72 to 71 prior to getting his jaw dislocated. Shane Campbell, multiple-time Muay Thai world champion, Darren Crookshake, Sam Stout. You have to go back all the way to 2012 when Anthony Njiquani outstruck him. So if this just stays standing, I, I'm not actually super confident that Ignacio Bahamanes just beats him stand-up the whole time. But I think is that John McDessie is only just going to do a little bit more than his opponent at best. And for that reason, he doesn't steal rounds. He doesn't run away with rounds. And they're just they're they're dicey close rounds, and I, I really gotta hope that the that the refs or the judges, sorry, are thinking the same thing I'm thinking. But here's an interesting thing: so he left TriStar, right? Goes down to uh, to Rufus Sport, been at Rufus Sport, and then for this camp, he's actually at the MMA lab. So I like that more than I like Rufus Sport, and also I think that John Kretsch will have a really good game plan around how to utilize those leg kicks against this taller opponent, how to try to neutralize them. If we can mix in a takedown, I'd love it, but I really don't see it happening. Uh, this is a, this is a pass at best, but that's why I opened it up by saying it's a dogger pass. Like if anything, I'd have like that short Mac Desi by decision side, but th we're, we're here to talk about props. So the prop that I liked here was the minus 150 fight goes the distance in that John McDessey is not looking to finish anybody. He's like, yeah. he's a, he's at this point, risk adverse decision machine. Bahamondes, as we talked about, only knocked out really low level guys. This is a huge step up for him. And he's taking on a guy that's been in there with, you know, some of the best guys in the division. So Fight goes the distance, minus 150. If that was the, if I was going to bet one prop on this fight that I thought was probably the best chance of hitting uh, percentage-wise, I think that would be it. All right, so I got plus 175 on Baja Mundes via decision. If you want to even go the other side with McDessey to win by, uh, by decision, I'm sure that's a nice little juicy prop right there. You got McDessey by decision on plus 290. So depending on what side you're going, it's more than likely going to go the distance. So, yeah, taking that uh, go to the distance prop is not a bad idea. All right, next up. We're pretty much halfway through the card now. We got Norma Dumont going up against early, or sorry, a short nurse opponent, Erin Blanchfield. And I did want to say early because she's an early bloomer here. She's only 21 years old coming into this fight. She has uh, seven fights under her belt, uh, most of them in the Invicta scene. Uh, and uh, her only loss is coming to now UFC, uh, I believe, straw weight, or sorry, uh, uh, flyweight, Tracy Cortez, in a fight that was pretty much a split decision. It was very much de uh, decided in the grappling realm where we saw Tracy Cortez uh, pretty much uh, control the third round. The first round was very weird where you see Blanchfield going for a, a, an armbar pretty much the entirety of that round, but Tracy Cortez was, was defending very well. Uh, but then it was just the strength of Cortez that was able to uh, overwhelm her late in that round. But she is... Uh, a work in progress still. Her striking definitely still needs some work. It is getting better on a fight-to-fight -fight basis, which is good to see, but she just doesn't really have that pop or anything behind it. Well, I guess you can ask Victoria Leonardo. She probably has something else to say with that head kick that she uh, pretty much decapitated her. But outside of that, like her hands, I feel like still need a little bit of work. It seems like she's just throwing them out there, not really with much technique or much sauce behind them, which is why opponents are able to kind of just walk through them. Uh, but when she does mix in that head kick, 
there definitely will be some problems for our opponent. Now, on the Norma Dumont side, you know, it's interesting because we only have like three legitimate fights that we can go back and watch. One of them being the Megan Anderson fight, which only lasted about three or four minutes, where she was just grappling her up against the cage, trying to drag her to the ground unsuccessfully. And then uh, Megan Anderson lands that beautiful shot to drop her and finish her there. Then we have a fight on the regional scene where the guy, the girl that she was fighting didn't even look like she wanted to be in there. She was able to get her out of there within two minutes. And then the last fight we had was the Ashley Evans Smith fight where not not you know not too bad it was a, it was a good account of herself even though she did miss the uh, wait for that fight for by three and a half pounds she showed a pretty good game plan right she went out there outstruck ashley evan smith the more devastating and impactful shots on the feet and then even in the ground right uh in the second round she was able to get ashley evan smith down and land some good shots from on top maintain good top pressure and uh really put it on ashley evan smith in that fight and i think that really uh, confused a lot of people because Norma opened up as a pretty heavy favorite in that fight and everybody's on Ashley Evan Smith because of the lack of information that we had on Norma Dumont at that time and we still have a lack of information I'm not willing to just be like Norma Dumont is deservedly a minus 255 favorite here just because she went out there and beat Ashley Evan Smith apparently Ashley Evan Smith had some sort of uh injury or something going into that fight too so we don't know truly how good Norma Dumont is but with that said you got Aaron Blanchfield coming in here, 29 years old, still kind of green, uh, going up a weight class on short notice. And you got Norma Dumont, who's a big girl, coming down from 145. She missed weight, like I said, for uh, that fight against Ashley Evan Smith. So it's going to be interesting to see on the scales tomorrow, does Norma Dumont win that battle with the scale? How does she look on the scale? And how much bigger and thicker is she going to look than uh, Aaron, Aaron Blanchfield? Because Blanchfield, in my opinion, she has great jiu-jitsu. That's probably one of her best traits. She She's very offensive off of her back, and she's able to like throw up submissions from weird angles. But at a certain point, physicality outweighs skill. And I feel like that's what's going to happen here in this uh, this fight between Dumont and Blanchfield. I wanted to look for a reason to bet Blanchfield, given the hype that she has. And I'm pretty high on her myself, but I think the physicality at the end of the day is just going to be too much for her. And I think we'll see Norma land the better shots on the feet. I think we'll see her stuff all the takedowns that we see Aaron Blanchfield try to go for. Uh, and we see Dumont go out there and pull off a, a decision victory. So in terms of props, the over two and a half is minus 290. Obviously a little bit too juice for us, but we want to get specific with method of victories. And we're going with Dumont wins by decision, minus 105. Again, I wish we were getting a little bit of a uh, plus money there. But uh, yeah, I think this one's a little bit dry for props. I saw somebody put out there a uh, Blanchfield by, by submission, which is plus 1350, which I think is absolutely outrageous considering how good of a jiu-jitsu player that she is. Uh, but again, physicality, I think Dumont being too big is going to nullify those submission attempts, nullify her grappling uh, uh, attempts. And uh, we'll see Dumont come out of this fight with a decision victory. How do you see this one? You're going to have to watch to see weigh-ins for sure. I mean, yeah. like you mentioned, Dumont, first fight in the UFC at 145 pounds, looks actually like a 145-pound fighter, and then uh, comes down to 135 and then botches weight, comes in three and a half pounds overweight, and didn't look like she had that tough of a cut because when she came in against Ashley Evans-Smith, she didn't look drained. She didn't look... She didn't look tired. She looked cardio looked on point, and she absolutely looked very good in that fight. But here we got to see her make 135. In the Ashley Evans Smith fight, it didn't matter if she came in with a broken leg. She was going to win that fight because karma, real thing. And Ashley Evans Smith stealing PPE up old lady's porch, <laughs> right? Her and her boyfriend, like some real boyfriend, some real loser <laughs> shit. Uh, karma just was going to karma killed my cat, and it, it got her that night, right? So don't fuck with it. It is what it is. 
she looked good in that fight, right? 94 significant strikes landed. She had the two takedowns. She knocked her down. She looked big. She looked strong. She looked physical. That's all problems for Aaron Blanchfield. Because like you mentioned, one, 21 years old, you know, we call it for men fighters, man strength. I don't know exactly what you would call it for the female fighters, but that's a big thing. The difference between 21 and 30 is significant, right? In that strength development. On top of that, you have the naturally bigger fighter in Dumont. And on top of that, she's coming in here on short notice, not having that that the luxuries of a full training camp. But why would you take a 21-year-old super prospect? And I think everybody can agree she's a super prospect. She's looked absolutely spectacular in the regional scene. And But I mean spectacular is that she's three fights into her career. She beats Kay Hansen. Really notable win, especially yeah. in hindsight, right? The Tracy Cortez fight. Tracy Cortez looks like an absolute badass, is cutting it really well in the UFC right now. And it's a close competitive split decision. The Victoria Leonardo fight. This is a girl that's shown very little striking. Bam, head kick. And the ring IQ is tight on that because she saw it. She spotted it, spotted it. It really helped you in your tape study with the Maria the Fro fight because it was like, oh, there you go. You see it. Yeah. The Blanchfield exposes that. And, I mean, Leonardo, again, UFC, strong, durable. Likes to come – I shouldn't say durable, but likes to come forward and be aggressive. And then that Brogan-Walker-Sanchez fight. Again, these are not these are not bad opponents. These are all good – good level opponents why would your coaching staff take a 21 year old legitimate prospect and move them up a weight class on short notice to make their ufc debut makes no sense right zero but clearly they got a lot of confidence in this girl and i think when you look back at the footage you look back at the fights she's very confident in herself and she looks good is this a very disadvantaged spot that she's put herself in absolutely but can she go out there and win this fight i believe so when I look at Norma Dumont, like you also mentioned, there's just not a whole lot that you can go off of her, right? Her first two pro fights happen all the way back in 2016, right? She she beats an, an 0-0 opponent, and she goes the distance with a 2-0 opponent. Comes back 2017 against an 0-2 opponent. At this point, has fought no. And then she takes that Mariana Moraes fight at Shooter Brazil 68, right? It's a 13-8 journeyman opponent. She doesn't look good. She wins a majority decision. It's not a very good fight. And then from there, there's effectively a two-year gap before she fought Megan Anderson. So she, she hadn't fought anybody. The one time she fought a journeyman opponent that at least had, you know, a 13-8 and record, you at least have 21 fights on your record, right? Like, at least you have some experience. The one time she stepped up, majority decision, didn't look particularly good, gets knocked out bad by Megan Anderson, and then misses weight and beats Ashley Evans-Smith, a 50-50 UFC fighter. So, like, sold on her? No, no, not sold on her. What I see out of Blanchfield is she's fought in all the best level of competition that she could. She's She's got decent striking. Her ground game is definitely her best thing. And where she doesn't show a whole lot of submission records, they're right. You know, 13, 13 to 1 on a submission prop is actually pretty decent. I looked at the decision prop as well. You could almost bet a little sprinkle on both. But Blanchfield by decision plus 325, getting those takedowns on Dumont going to be tough. But Dumont, not a great striker, right? So maybe she can do a little bit striking. Maybe she can wrestle a little bit. I really don't think her coaches would have thrown her in this spot, nor do I think the UFC matchmakers, who clearly have Aaron Blanchfield on their radars, would throw her in this spot unless there was some faith there. But really what it does come down to is we've got to see Wayne's tomorrow. We've got to see Wayne's. We've got to see what Dumont. If she comes in shredded, looking good, energetic, makes the money, it's a tough spot for Blanchfield. If she comes in, makes the weight, doesn't look good, or she comes in and missed weight, and it's not three, four pounds, like something to consider, right? But uh, the the spot that I would be looking at would be Aaron Blanchfield as the dog play by decision plus three twenty five. I don't hate that submission prop, but I think the safer side would be the decision.
Interesting. So you're on the dog in the spot. I, I get it. I, I wish we had more access to the tape on Norma Dumont's earlier fights rather than just having, okay, we just got fucking Wikipedia topology. Would it, to would it, would it matter though? Would it matter? Cause you'd I want to see how she's through. getting them though. I want to yeah. see how she's getting the wins. That's, that's the main thing, right? It doesn't matter the level of competition. For me, it's more so how is she getting the wins? And the, the one fight that I have from regional tape is she blew through this girl because the girl just wasn't up to it like the, it wasn't really up to par so uh, there's just too many question marks i get the underdog spot i wouldn't lay minus 255 myself on normal dumont i'll be honest with that there's no way that i do that given the li limited amount of information that i have minus 105 on the decision prop isn't even even that enticing for me either so yeah the 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 sub prop on blanchfield looks fucking amazing or even the decision prop doesn't look that bad either but yeah I, i'm very questionable regarding their decision to put her in this spot uh you know again short notice going up a weight class and all that type of stuff so yeah, I'm excited for both women to see what we get here. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We got uh, former KSW champ Matias Gamrot making his second trip to the Octagon against Scott Holtzman. We got Gamrot coming in at that chalky minus 240 and plus 200 on uh, Scott Holtzman. I like me some Gamrot here, right? I, a lot of people feel like he got robbed in that Gurum fight. Gurum himself feels like he he <laughs> robbed uh, Matias that night, which was hilarious to see. Not often do you see a fighter like own up to it literally right after the decision gets read. Uh, but uh, Gamrot still brings some good tools to the table. The one thing that surprised me about Scott Holtzman when I was looking into him, the guy's 37 years old. I'm not sure why that surprised me as much as it did. He made his UFC debut, I believe, in 2015 or 2016, and he's had a decent run. And losing to Benio Dariush in your last fight isn't the worst thing, considering that Dariush is just about to fight Tony Ferguson probably for a number one contender fight. Uh, but it, it's the it's the loss to Nick Lentz that sticks out to me like a sore thumb. It's that one that he just couldn't get past. And it's funny to think that Nick Lentz was actually younger than him going into that fight. Well, obviously, he's always younger than him. But like the way that he beat him, it's a similar way that Matias Gamrot could probably beat him, but even in a better way. Right, the much better striking from Gamrod and the ability to mix up the striking and the grappling so effortlessly, effortlessly is going to give Scott Holtzman trouble. I think he's starting to slow down. I think he's on the decline in his career. Not to mention his two wins between the Darius fight and the Lens fight was a win over Dong Young, Lil Dong, pretty much. And then we got uh, what's his face, Jim Miller, that he goes out there and beats again. Jim Miller on his last legs as well in the UFC at this point. Uh, so I don't really rate those wins too highly at this point in time. And now going up against a guy in Gamera who feels like he got robbed last time around and wants to reintroduce himself to the American audience by going out there and having a very solid performance. So I'm expecting him to go out there put on a good uh, clinic against uh, Scott Holtzman, outstrike him, mix in some takedowns, do whatever you have to do. Let's get the W this weekend. I think that's exactly what he's going to do. So th the way that I think he gets done is by decision. I think he grinds it out over 15 minutes, striking, grappling, the whole shebang, plus 105. I love that spot. I, I think he's one of the better spots on this card. Even at minus 240, I think he's deserving of that price tag. He, he should go out there and thoroughly beat Scott Holtzman. Am I crazy? Talk me down. Let me know what you think. No, listen, I'm the I'm a huge Matus Camerot Mark. I mean, I absolutely love this guy. I follow his entire career in KSW, and he is an absolute animal. When he fought at 145 pounds, it was a sight to behold. But those days are long gone. He's got to fight at 155 now. And yeah, again, he's only 30 years old. You see a lot of improvements from him in the striking. You see uh, his wrestling top notch. The one thing that he's lacking is like, I don't want to call it ring IQ, but he's a slow starter. He's fought a lot of five-round fights in KSW, and as a result, he just doesn't have a sense of urgency in there. He also probably has that self-belief at 17-0 prior to his last fight against uh, Kudalitz, uh, is that it's like 
he, he probably just believes he's winning these exchanges. And and by the way, with Polish judges, he's winning all of those exchanges. Yeah. Right. But now in the UFC, it's like, dude, there has to be a little more sense of urgency. You gotta you gotta go out in there and get this guy a little bit. What looking at the tape on Kudelitz, he was easy to take down. And I really thought that Gamrock going into that spot, it was just like a match made in heaven that he would get these takedowns. But one Kudelitz was just thick Georgian muscle, man. Ooh. Like so ripped up coming into that fight and had spent at that point, a couple of years, but definitely the full camp with uh, Kamzat Chemayev as like chief sparring partner. So clearly he knows a little something about a get-up game because uh, you're going to be getting taken down a lot in those sparring sessions. And I'm sure he did get taken down a lot, but he flustered Gamron that when Gamron would get the takedowns, he's able to more or less get up. And when he got up, he was just getting off the quicker strikes. I know he probably thought he lost. I know Gamron probably thought that Kudelitz lost. I know some fans who might be salty thought he lost. I had a lot of money on Matus Gamron. I knew he lost. I knew he lost that fight because he got off to a slow start. So what's going to be important here against Scott Holtzman is just go at the, that third round Gamrot money. If that fight goes one round more, and if it was a five rounder, we get two rounds more. No, no question. But in a three round fight, you got to get on the gas a little bit, and that's what I'm hoping Gamrot can go out and do. If this was headlining a fight night again, money take get, he'd be able to take Holtzman to those deeper waters. But it's three rounds. I just need a quicker start out of him. As far as how the fight matches up, listen, Holtzman's not a fish out of water. I know you go back to that Lens fight, and I will talk about that fight as well. He doesn't look good. Lens takes him down five times, controls him. That's exactly what Gamrock could do. But one thing about uh, Holtzman is that he's a decent athlete. Guy played semi-pro hockey in Tennessee once upon a time. But you see the improvements that he makes between losing that Nick Lens fight to eventually getting that Dungan-Ma fight. Looks good. Gets, drops him. Ends up being a doctor stoppage. The Jim Miller fight, he looks very good. And in the Neil Dariush fight, it's like, man, he's, he's fighting Dariush. He got hit by like a 65-punch combination, <laughs> right? It was like, God damn, Benil gonna Benil. But he's not completely a fish out of water. He is 37, being at – he was at the MMA lab. I know he's still at the MMA lab. Yeah. They're going to have a good game plan. They're going to put something together. Maybe he tries to work the leg. Maybe he tries to do something. But ultimately, I just don't think it's going to be enough. I think that Gamrot's going to succeed in getting some of these takedowns. Gamrot's going to be able to control him. Gamrot's going to be able to get the job done. I see this fight going the distance, minus 225. Oh, bookie's on the same page, right? Not a whole lot of value you can get out of that. But because we are on Team Gamrot, we're going to go with that Gamrot by decision uh, at plus 105. Now, I know in the comment section, shout out, by the way, uh, Greetson mentioned that Gamrot by submission prop. And again, it's live. It's live, and that's we've seen Scott Holtzman get submitted. But Gamrot looks to just grind on guys a little bit more, right? And you see in KSW, because it's prolonged five-round fights, he just waits a little bit too long to get it going. This is a five-round fight. That's a great submission prop. But in a three-round fight, I just don't know. Now, it's possibly comes in here and realizes, coach said the exact same thing, like, hey, man, you got to get going. And if that's the case, this is a guy that went seven minutes with Gary Tone on the ADCC championship, yeah. right? He knows how to grapple. He's a very good grappler. But he's one of these guys that just breaks you down first, right? And Holtzman at 37, still a durable enough guy. So I'd be leaning towards that decision prop. Is it possible? Certainly. But I'd like it a lot better in a five-round situation. Yeah, I'm definitely on uh, the, the decision side here as well. Not to mention that I believe uh, only four out of 17 victories for Matisse Gamron have come via or via submission. So that's something to keep in mind here. By the way, shout out to the people with the Super Chat for sure. First and foremost, obviously we're not on, on odds anymore. We're not getting that paycheck anymore. So these Super Chats that we will be getting through the show, much appreciated, much grateful. Me and Cody will be splitting this half and half. I definitely want to make this something that we can continue to you know make financially look or very lucrative for us to continue doing on a week-to-week -week basis. But first and foremost, it's always great to have you guys here on a Thursday evening. So 
We're not badgering you guys for super chats. If you guys are uh, more than uh, generous to, to drop some, that's awesome. But me and Cody will definitely be slitting this thing uh, and keep doing this thing on a week-to-week -week basis for you guys. All right, let's move on to the next fight that we got up here. And I believe, yes, we are at the prelim headliner. And it is, we just talked about him, Jim Miller going up against uh, Joe Selecki here. And we got pretty much the same odds that we got in this last fight. We got minus 240 for the young upstart Joe Selecki and plus 200 for Jim Miller. I love me some Joe Selecki in this spot. I think that he's a great grappler. Obviously, that was his background coming into the MMA world. And uh, he seems to be getting his striking up to par as well. There's a difference between the striking improvements that we've been seeing from Aaron Blanchfield since she came into the MMA game and what we've been seeing from Joe Selecki. I feel like we see a little bit more power and prop from his shots. We see him throwing in a little bit more combinations. Obviously, his end game is to get the fight to the ground, but he does a good job of filling those lows with solid striking and good power behind them. I believe he's training out of Jim O or uh, John Salter's gym down there in North Carolina, and he's getting some good looks from down there. Even if you go through his IG, he has some. Uh, he's getting in some rounds with Chris Weidman, so you definitely know that he's going to be working on his wrestling. He's trying to get the fight to the ground. That's ultimately what he do, what he does best. And, and it and it pains me. Like when I'm, uh, we're going to be talking about Mackenzie Dern a little bit later. But when a fighter has such a advantage over their fighters, which is the the wrestling and or sorry the the jujitsu. Why work on your hands as much rather than your wrestling? Get your wrestling in part so you can guarantee that you get the fight to the ground or as close to guarantee to get the fight to the ground and then get your submission game going. That's what Mackenzie Dern should be working on, right? That's what Joe Selecki is working on, is getting the fight to the ground. Even in the Austin Harbor fight, he didn't get the fight to the ground. He just hopped on the guy's back and he's like, I'm going to choke you out in a couple minutes, but thank you for giving me your back. And that's exactly what he did that night against Austin Hubbard. Now, a lot of people were jumping off the Joe Selecki train after that Matt Wyman fight. We talked about it even when we broke down the, the Jordan Levitt for, for, fight for Matt Wyman. The guy's very crafty on the ground. He has very good submission defense. Never had been submitted in his UFC career and still hasn't been submitted in his MMA career, right? So Matt Wyman, it's not that bad of a thing that Joe Selecki didn't go out there and submit this guy. So I think that's why people are hopping off the train. And we got Joe Selecki at plus 100 against Austin Hubbard. And then he goes out there and just wipes him, well, pretty much chokes him out within two and a half minutes in that fight. But his jiu-jitsu game, I believe, is on another level at this point in time. He has a 10-year youth advantage here against uh, Jim Miller. He's Jim Miller, in my opinion, is on the last little bit of his legs. Um, you know, he's going to be a little bit slower. Uh, I believe Joe Selecki will be a step ahead at this point in time. Uh, I believe uh, Jim Miller's takedown defense is very porous at this point in his career as well. And, uh, you know, that, that win over Roosevelt Roberts, a lot of people think that might be, okay, this is great now. This is, um, you know, this is Jim Miller 4.0 or whatever the fuck because he was able to submit Roosevelt Roberts, who was a huge favorite going into that fight. But Roosevelt Roberts slipped. He ended up on the bottom, and Jim Miller just did what he does, and that's go for a submission. If Joe Selecki slips and ends up on his back, He's a lot safer than Roosevelt Roberts. He has way more submission acumen than Roosevelt Roberts brought into that game. So I really like Joe Selecki in this spot. I think he takes him down at will. I think he controls him in the jiu-jitsu room. I think the only way Jim Miller truly wins this fight is if he clubs and subs him early in the fight or gets a knockout. Joe Selecki has been knocked out in earlier in his career, but I think he's been making the proper adjustments uh, throughout his career to go out there and actually make the improvements that are required to be successful in the UFC. And that's what we're seeing here. It's a tough task, I will say, to be fighting a guy like Jim Miller in your third UFC fight, not to mention your, what is that, your 13th MMA pro fight. But I think he's up to the up to task here. I think he definitely will go out there. Uh, late submission, another possible round three prop here, as Jim Miller does seem to start to slow down the later the fight goes. And Joe Selecki seems to have a very good gas tank. So you can get Joe Selecki round three plus 11 to 75. I think that's a good spot. Um, Joe Selecki, even by submission, 
plus 400. Jamiller has been submitted. Again, you got guys like Charles Oliveira and Cowboys Ronnie and these guys uh, on that record. Uh, but still, I think Joe Selecki is at that level of grappling. And even if you want to be safer, under two and a half plus 120, I don't think is a bad spot in case Jim Miller is the one that ends up getting that finish. But ultimately, I'm going with Joe Selecki, and I'm going to go with him to finish this fight late, probably round three submission or round three TKO, ground pound, whatever you want to call it. But I got my guy Joe Selecki here. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, fair enough. I think that Joe Selecki's live. He's he's li I knew I knew 100% you were going to that third round prop. Same, same <laughs> you thing. know it. Because like, Jim Miller's got this legendary cardio, legendary durability. Guys, the hardworking man, quintessential hardworking man, just goes, 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 right? But call it age, call it just absolute sheer wear and tear on the body, or call it Lyme disease. He definitely doesn't got that same pizzazz in the gas tank. He doesn't have that same, like third round grit and determination mind you he's not getting finished per se he's not really getting knocked out his two losses that are inside the distance charles Oliveira submits him okay no no big deal <laughs> dan, dan hooker catches him with a knee on the inside okay no big deal goes the distance with anthony pettis which is not that impressive goes the distance with justin poirier manages to get a draw on one of the judges scorecards extremely impressive right when this guy's on, durability is not an issue. So for Joe Selecki, it might be another similar situation where he needs to outgrapple this guy. The submission doesn't materialize, but what you're seeing out of Miller now is that the longer these fights go, he just gets tired and he starts to wear a lot of damage. And it's not it's not as easy as this is um Chael Sonnen's submission underground. I take Joe Selecki in a grappling match over Jim Miller, right? This would be similar. Submitting Joe Jim Miller in that setting, a lot different. Submitting Jim Miller when you got him backpacked and we're 11 minutes into a fight, and he's huffing and puffing, and you're just smashing down ground and pound from the back position. He's taking shots. He's bleeding. He's sweaty. He makes one slip up, and you grab the neck. That's entirely different. And with Jim Miller, as in great as a grappler he is, there's a there's the new age. The new age of grappling has come and gone, right? And I, I get the fight was six years ago, but when he fought Michael Chiesa, I thought no chance mm. Michael Chiesa is going to submit this guy. It's Jim Miller. Submission defense is just absolutely incredible. You mentioned Donald Cerrone submitted him. Donald Cerrone absolutely he head kicked him. Sorry, he didn't submit him. But I'm not sure why. Yeah, no, 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 it's all good. All good. It's like uh, he took a lot of damage and body shot eventually crumpled him over. I think he but finished like, him twice that fight. I believe that was a fight where he finished him twice. It's like, my God, just a, a, a tough go, but I guess the upper echelon. But submission defense hadn't been a problem. And then when he got submitted by Michael Chiesa, Michael Chiesa is young. Michael Chiesa is still green. Michael Chiesa is a a power grappler and he's able to get the submission the first round of that fight jim miller is looking good second round of that fight his game just falls right apart and that's a, a theme you would go on to see in the years after that but then let's talk about that charles Oliveira fight no big deal that you lost to charles Oliveira. but if you remember that's a rematch from jim miller versus charles Oliveira one where jim miller catches him in a knee bar and at that time charles Oliveira was known as a wizard grappler one of these up-and-coming guys but even rogan and all the guys like oh you can't sleep on miller because it was like that you know the savvy dog yeah. But now, now progress into current times, it's like he's not nearly on the same level as a Charles Oliver who's progressed. Now, Joe Selecki is not Charles Oliver. We shouldn't even mention them in the same breaths. But is it is it possible that a worn, torn out Jim Miller uh, can get that third round, you know, just doesn't quite have anymore, and Selecki picks up at 11 at 11 to 1 for the third round finish, that minus 400 on the submission. They don't quite like that as much, but it still is 4 to 1. It's like it's like I get it, but I, I I would think that Selecki just gets this thing goes the distance is what I would think. I would think even if Miller had one left in the tank, he's normally he wins these fights by first round submission, first round finish, or he just gets tired and his game falls apart. I think that's the way it's going. Even if he was to beat Joe Selecki, I don't see him finishing Joe Selecki. And uh, Selecki just goes out there, makes us a grappling affair, takes us back a few times, gets the takedowns, wins on the judges' scorecards. We got a fight going the distance, minus one twenty. 
So even though I, I'm agreeing with you that th that third round play, it's live, the third round play also could be close and then the buzzer goes and we hit a decision prop instead. So what I was looking at was Selecki by decision, but more or less this fight just goes the distance, minus 120. I love how we both have the perfect amount of like, I love the violence, you love the decision props, and we just yeah, yeah. kind of like balance each other out and then we let the viewers kind of decide, okay, this is, you know, I like the points that Manpreet's making, I like the points that Cody's making, I'll make my own decision at the end of the day. So we'll see how it goes uh, this Saturday. All right, we're right on to the main card. I do want to remind you guys, we're close to 200 live viewers and we're getting damn near close to what we used to do for odds. So that is awesome. I'm glad that everybody is back on the channel here. This is where you guys are always going to find us 8 p.m. Eastern on Thursday nights. Just a reminder though, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe, obviously. But tomorrow, normally we do that 9 p.m. show, a final weigh-in show on the odds. That's going to be gone, but I'm trying to replace that by myself. I'm going to have a revolving panel of guests every Friday. Cody is obviously in the fold. He'll be on one of the shows in the coming weeks. But I'm looking to get uh, a showcase a ton of different talent that we have in this uh, MMA handicapping space that we have on Twitter, on YouTube. we got a lot of great guys out there. I can't wait to showcase them for you. So 9 p.m. Eastern, there is still a home for you guys. It's on this channel here. So make sure you guys hit that subscribe, hit that notification bell, and you guys will be no or notified when we go live 9 p.m eastern so again don't worry there's still content for you guys odds is not around anymore but we are filling that void don't worry we got you guys all right let's get right into the main card here and this one i'm really looking forward to because we got our guy mike perry coming in against dan not just mike perry papa perry and apparently you guys are calling papa platinum i like that one too uh papa perry, papa perry going up against daniel rodriguez here and we got uh, Daniel Rodriguez coming in at minus 150. The line continues to drop. He had opened at minus 180, down to minus 150 now. And we got plus 130 on Mike Perry. So I, I, I'm buying. I, I can't say it. I can't. I can't believe I'm saying it. I'm buying into the Papa Perry narrative a little bit. I believe that we're going to see a better version of him, and not just because he's a father, but you see that he's actually aligning himself with MMA Masters, and I think that's a great gym for him to go out there and line himself up with, right? You got guys like Colby Compton that are training there. You got Miguel Baeza, Danny Chavez. Well, well you know what I isn't mean. That, like, isn't that weird? Like, aren't him I, and Colby sworn fucking enemies? Like, isn't that a weird dynamic? It's so weird. <laughs> are they in the training room together at the same time? I'm not 100% sure. They're probably not, but, but still. To, to get that level of training where you're getting guys like I'm trying to remember the head coach's name Carnero I know is his last name but um that's that's a solid group to be around and one thing that I noticed that a lot of their fighters are very uh you know um something they hammer a lot in their fights is that calf kick you got my Miguel, Miguel Baeza they're always goes after it you got Donnie Chavez they're always goes after it and if they're able to implement that into Mike Perry's game could you imagine how nice his hands would look once he starts to immobilize uh his opponents with those calf kicks if that's something that he can bring into his game I'd be super ecstatic but we haven't seen it yet so let's see him go out there and actually do it first before we put serious money on this guy but regardless we've seen him go out there and have close fights against guys like Vicente Luque and and some of his prior fights where he's going to war with these guys and I feel like Daniel Rodriguez and I hate to say it I feel like the guy's slightly overrated he's always getting this love like since he knocked out Tim Means people are all over this guy you know what I mean he's coming in as like a minus 300 minus 200 favorite in all of his fights but I still don't think he's proven anything crazy to us yet. Now, the funny thing is, Mike Perry, his last fight against Tim Means, it could look similar to this fight with Daniel Rodriguez. Daniel Rodriguez has a mean, nasty jab right down the middle. From that southpaw stance, he's really able to stay on it and keep his opponents at distance. But you got to believe Mike Perry and his coaches have learned something from that last fight. They must have watched that fight back and been like, okay, you're getting stuck on the end outside because you, you can't get past Tim Means' jab. What are we going to do to fix that? 
there's got to be something that they're looking at to to, to fix that because he just can't stay on the end of the jab the entire night. He's just going to get beat up just like he did against Tim Means. So I think it's great that he had Tim Means as his last fight, a good stylistic uh, comparison to what you're going to be seeing with Daniel Rodriguez. And the weird thing that we've been seeing from Mike Rodriguez in his last, or sorry, from uh, Mike Perry in his last couple fights is that he started grappling. Like th th that was so weird to see, right? The Mickey Gall fight. He's actually getting touched up by Mickey Gall early in that fight. And then you see Mike Perry go out there and just like, fuck this, let's take this to the ground. And that's where he starts to go for. Even in the Tim Means fight, first thing he does is take Tim Means down. But then he's not able to continuously get him down. That's where Tim Means start to, starts to go to work. My my brain is so scrambled on this fight, but I'm still ending up on the other side with Mike Perry. I feel like his experience is going to come through here. I think he's going to put together a solid game plan with his new training camp. And that Papa Perry narrative, I think it's going to come to fruition here. I think it's going to give him that extra motivation that he needs that when he's getting stuck on the end of that jab, he's going to be like, fuck it, I have a son to fight for now. And he'll probably have to start to like work to get to a, a better position to land the better strikes. I feel like he has a ton of power still. He hasn't uh, actually gotten a knockout since 2017 where he knocked out Dominic Reyes' brother, Alex Reyes. But that Never fought nasty, again. Never yeah. fought again. Killed if I'm him, not mistaken, so. it was a nasty elbow that actually put him out there. A beautiful knockout from him there. But I still think he has power in his hands. And I feel like if he could immobilize Daniel Rodriguez, he could potentially find that chin and put him out here. But I'm actually going to go with the decision prop here for Mike Perry. I think he does land the bigger, better shots. I think he finds a way to get in on the inside of Daniel uh, Daniel Rodriguez. And we take Perry by decision. Plus 430 is hella juicy to take a little bit of a sprinkle on a guy that we know is durable a guy that's going to continuously move forward. Now, hopefully he adds some more wrinkles to his game uh, and we could more confidently back that plus 430. But plus 430, given what we have, is not too bad for a little bit of a sprinkle. But in terms of serious money, it, I, I don't want to put it on Mike Perry at this point in time because we need to see those improvements first inside the cage before we actually see, you know, before we start writing home that Papa Perry is Papa Cowboy when he first had his kid and he was going on his little bit of a, a crazy run that he was on. So I, I'm leaning Perry. I'm leaning Perry by decision plus 430. How are you seeing this one? Okay, so first and foremost, you guys see the weigh-ins, man. I mean, he came in five pounds yes. overweight his last time out. Yeah. And again, weigh-ins are tomorrow, so you haven't seen the, the I'm dying tweets out of him yet. But he has been talking earlier in the week, like, this is, might be my last fight at 170. I'm going to go try to fight Darren Till at 185 pounds. I'd rather fight at 185 pounds. Dog, you ain't the size of a middleweight. You know, uh -huh. you're 5'10 at best on a good day. And you just, you don't have long reach. You see what a guy like Tim Means can do from the outside, and they carve him up. Oh, wait, that's the problem with Mike Perry. Every guy that he's fought that was that was a long, good striker has pieced him up from the outside. So Tim Means pieces him up like the jab, like you mentioned, all day. Jeff Neal, credit striker, knocks him out in 90 seconds with a head kick. N no moss. He looked phenomenal against Vincente Luque. That was Perry's best performance to date. It was all grit. It was all heart. Not a whole lot of technique. But to lose a split decision, a very competitive split decision. But he fucking lost his nose in that fight, man. Like, he took a lot of damage, lost from the outside, just because he's he's got this, like, you know, his shots are too loopy. They're not tight. They're not technical, you know? Like, you see it in the Mickey Gall fight where he's getting outstruck by Mickey Gall. And he, he, it's a chopping right hand. You know, he tries to chop down on it. Like, he's not sitting on these punches properly. Mind you, he's training himself out of a strip mall in Orlando at that point. But uh, it just it's a, it's a bad look for him. You go even further back, right? Max Griffin, Santiago Ponzinibbio, Alan Joban. What do all those guys have in common? They're all strikers. They all stood at the outside, and they all intercepted him. This is his entire career. He has a problem with that. So Rodriguez being the bigger guy, being the longer guy, and Rodriguez has a damn nasty jab. And he's going to be sticking in his face repeatedly. What you've seen from Daniel Rodriguez through his UFC fights, again, not fighting high-level competition by no means, um, but it, his output is on point. You know, He'll just keep throwing on these guys. You see uh, 
the Rico Farrington fight, that's contender series. He lands 108 significant strikes with four takedowns. It's a complete performance. The Tim Means fight, it actually was a submission victory, but you're right. He knocked Tim Means out at the end of the first and then knocked out Tim Means again in the second and put him away with a standing guillotine choke. Again, it's it's a complete performance. Now people are riding on the bandwagon. Now people are liking, they're kind of buying into it. The Gabe Green fight, okay, again, he's fighting Gabe Green and he took way too much damage in that fight, but 175 significant strikes landed. Fought all the way through to the end. Heart didn't seem to be an issue. Did get a little bit fatigued, but it was good to see him go some of those deep rounds and, and persevere. The Dwight Grant fight, you know, he, he had to he had to weather the storm, but then he comes back and he knocks out Dwight Grant. We all like what we're seeing out of him. The Dolby fight again outstretched Dolby eighty-five to fifty. His problem was Dolby clinching him up against the cage. That was his problem. He wasn't able to get out of these clinch type, uh, these clinch type situations, and he allowed Dolby to wear on him. I think you can break him. I think that is a plan for Mike Perry. Say so if you can drag this guy into the deeper waters, you can hopefully drown him. But he doesn't have the same clinch game, nor does he have the same fight IQ to actually stick to the game plan. He's just going to get a little wild and reckless. And we can talk about him being in a new gym, MMA Masters, all we want. But apparently none of those coaches are cornering him in this fight, right? They're unable to come over with him. So I don't know. It's going to be Latori Gonzalez giving him advice again. I don't know where the guy's at. What I am saying <laughs> that I, 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 I picked him over Tim Means. I picked him over Tim Means, and I thought, you know what? He is going to surprise you guys all with this new profound ground game. Because even though he was hardly fucking training, he looked really good in the golf fight with his grappling. And he had been spending the few hours that he was actually training with uh, Jacques Ray Souza and, uh, and Vieira out of uh, Fusion XL, right? So Rodolfo Vieira, not a great MMA fighter. Jacques Ray has seen better days, but grappling with these guys? Oof. Comes in the Tim Means fight, take Tim's Means down, looking good for three minutes. And then it was the bad weight cut. It was the bad training camp. It was the lack of motivation. That's what that's what costed for him. If he comes out here with two rounds of gas, he can take Daniel Rodriguez down. And he would be live for that submission, which is like 16 to 1, because he's never submitted somebody in his professional career. So it's probably not going to happen. But I agree, he could have success with the grappling. He could have success taking this to later waters. He could have that's all could, could, could. If he comes comes in shape, pictures look like he's on shape. Podcast looks like he's lit. You know, he's he's full of personality and he's looking good and he's motivated and he's in good shape. We're gonna have to see him step on the scales and and go from there. But I uh, the impression that I'm getting is that Rodriguez would have some 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 success from the outside like a lot of other guys have. Luckily for us, my friend, I don't gotta make a straight pick on this one. I just gotta hit a prop, and I agree. Fight goes the distance, you know. Whether you got Perry winning or Rodriguez uh, winning, Perry's real hard to put away, man. I mean, he just keeps coming at you all day, all night. So if Rodriguez is gonna win, I think he's gonna win by decision. Flip side to that, Mike Perry, known for power, but like, yeah, hasn't knocked anybody out since 2017. Um, the guy he did knock out never fought in the UFC again. Prior to that, his win over Jake Ellenberger was like legendary, but again, it's Jake Ellenberger at this stage. I think that was his last UFC fight, actually. Just not not a particularly good run, and that's 2017, you know? Is one single training camp the difference? Remember when he was at Greg Jackson's? Like, did it did it improve his power punching? No. But that Vincente Luque fight, by the way, was, was while he was at Greg Jackson's, right? So you can see what high-level coaching can do for this guy. Still don't know if it's too little too late so the play i would take this one is that prop fight goes the distance minus 120 and uh it's gonna be a fun fight mike perry's never been in a boring fight put it that way Ooh. including Rodriguez. the one outside of arby's you know at four <laughs> in the morning like, it's it's always entertaining with this guy you know that everybody's going to be watching every time he throws uh throws some fists or even tries to take somebody down but yeah i'm very much looking forward to this fight should definitely have fight of the night potential right now all over it especially with papa perry let's see what papa perry could do in his pro mma debut here all right next up we got 
Nina Nunez, UFC debut for Nina Nunez. Uh, Nina Azarov obviously coming back from her uh, uh, layoff where she gave birth to her baby with uh, Amanda Nunez. Uh, and she's taking on Mackenzie Dern here. I've seen a lot of split opinions on this fight. I'm very much looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it in terms of how I see it. I'm not sold on Mackenzie Dern's wrestling, and that's what she needs. I talked about it earlier when I was talking about Joe Selecki. Go out there, work on your uh, wrestling, and get this fight to the ground. She's one of 18 on takedowns in her UFC career. That is not a good good sign. I mean, she's not fighting Hannah Cyphers anymore, who's going to be willingly engaging her on the ground, or Rana Marcos, who's going to be willingly engaging with her on the ground. Nina Anzaroff is going to, or sorry, Nina Nunes. This is going to take a little bit while to, to get used to, but Nina Nunes is going to be able to go out there, and I believe she's going to be able to outstrike her. I think people are getting honey-dicked into the fact that Mackenzie Dern is a solid striker at this point in time. Don't get me wrong. She's getting in good work with Jason Perillo. She did show some improvements in her last couple of fights. But you going out there and out striking a girl like Verna Jandiroba is not going to make me believe that you're a legitimate striker. Go back and watch Verna Jandiroba fight. She's not a striker. She wants to take you down. She wants to work her jiu-jitsu. So Mackenzie Dern out striking Verna Jandiroba doesn't look as good as it does just because Verna Jandiroba is a high-level opponent. The striking's not there. It's not on the level of Nina Ansaroff. And now I'm not saying that Nina Ansaroff is freaking Israel Adesanya on the feet or anything like that, but she still has some good uh, strikes, right? Her jab is really nice. She was able to paint a picture on uh, Claudia Gadelia's face for rounds two and three and, and end up winning that fight uh, with an upset there. But she did get taken down in that first round. But she showed great submission defense off of her back. Claudia Gadelia, first round, really good submission game, really good uh, top jujitsu, but she wasn't able to get anything off there. Uh, and then we saw in the second round, we saw the 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 famous Claudia Gadelia gas dump. And that's where Nina Anzaroff was really able to start going forward, landing her big strikes and, you know, pretty much running away with the judge's decision. Uh, we did see some calf kicks out of her. Again, I'm always going to shout out the calf kicks whenever I see a fighter properly utilizing them. And that's what we saw from Nina Anzaroff. And who the hell is willingly going out there and fighting Tatiana Suarez? Who the hell is doing that? Nina Nunes is doing that. And unfortunately for her, she does not be able to she's not able to pull off the upset as close to a plus 350 plus 400 underdog that night against Suarez but who's beating Suarez nowadays right um my thing with Mackenzie Dern is she needs to get the fight to the ground one of 18 on takedowns in the UFC not going to cut it against a girl like uh Nina Nunes um her striking what's that going to do we don't know but the big question mark here about Nunes and why I'm a little bit hesitant to play her is the fact she's just coming back from giving birth, right? Mackenzie Dern did the same thing. She was 26 years old at the time, though, and she came back four months after giving birth. Nina Nunez, uh, you know, taking more time off, but is 34 years old, 35 years old at this point in time. Who knows what kind of uh, effects it's going to have on her body. By all accounts, she looks in amazing shape, right? She, You're seeing the IG pictures. You're seeing her in the bathing suits. You're seeing that she looks in cut-up shape. She's ready to go. But let's see her in the cage first, just like Papa Perry. Let's see it in action first before we actually go out there and put serious money on it. With that said, I'm still taking Nina Anzaroff. I think she keeps it on the feet. Mackenzie Jern's jiu-jitsu is probably the best in the UFC, but it means jack shit if you're not able to get the fight there. And I don't think she'll be able to do that here against uh, Nina Nunez. So I'm going Nina Nunez. This is fun to say, by the way. Nina Nunez, by decision, is plus 185. I don't mind that line. That's the line that I like the most. Even uh, actually the... The over two and a half, minus 175 is not too shabby either. But if you want to get a nice little plus money, I think Nina Nunes, be a decision plus 175 is not too bad. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, my favorite play was minus 155. Fight goes the distance. I think that someone is uh, gearing up to go the distance. When you got Nina Nunez, he's got seven fights in the UFC. I guess actually Nina Nunez making her debut. Ansarov, seven fights in the UFC. Six of them gone the distance. She does have a third, late third round submission 
over Jocelyn Jones Liebarger once upon a time. But again, a lot of her fights are, are are going to the scorecards. She can land over a hundred significant strikes. She can put a pace on you. But for the most part, it's just not. It's like a Tisha Torres style. I get Tisha just knocked out her last opponent, but you know what I mean. It's like yeah. there's a lot of volume, there's a lot of strikes landing, good combinations, but just not that stinging power. And with Mackenzie Dern, say what you want about the fake accent or you know, a pretty girl and jujitsu and the note. Like this girl is a fighter. Like she don't mind getting hit. She don't mind getting hit and coming forward. You see that in a lot of these some of these spots where she is still raw and reckless. Her striking's getting better. She hurts Amanda Bobby Cooper with the right hand. You see some power developing there. And then the Vernon Jandranova fight, it's a much better performance that you get to see that striking in progress, striking in work. She's bounced around from a few gyms, got kicked out of Black House, got kicked out of the MMA lab, you know, moves around here and there, kind of does her own thing. But she is making improvements. She does take training extremely seriously. If the fight hits the ground, Dern's on top, you've got massive amounts of problems. But yeah, you go back to the fact that it's 5% takedown accuracy. Right through 18 attempts, right? So it's not, it's like a decent enough portion at this point. And it's like one takedown. It was over Ashley Yotter. And she actually only won a split decision over Ashley Yotter. Didn't look all that good. But there's a fight where it goes the decision. Amanda Rebus, her fight goes the decision. Uh, Hannah Cyphers, Hannah Cyphers piecing her up, standing bad. <laughs> and then the fight flops to the ground. And she gets a knee bar. Ronda Marcos is doing more than okay. And then falls out of the ground very inexplicably. Vernon Jandranova is a very one-dimensional grappler. And what, what are you going to do? Are you going to take down Dern and try to grapple with her? No. So she can't strike. Good path there for Dern with the striking. This is a spot where the path is not there with the striking. I mean, I, Nina Nunez is going to piece her up as far as the striking goes. She's had levels above. This is a girl that spent the last nearly decade over at the MMA or uh, at the American Top Team. She's on team number one. She's got Matt, Mike Brown with her. She's, you know, Everything goes into it. She's got her, her her spouse, Amanda Nunez, who's the absolute lady goat, coming off a, a huge title victory where she talked on her opponent, just ap- looked motivated. Kid wasn't a problem in that. I get that it's like Nina's the one that had the child. Maybe what's what's her body gone through? But it's like, man, uh, the human body is an incredible thing because you see high-level women in quite literally every single sport that have had children. It's like you, you can come back from it. Is this a quick turnaround? It's like five months or something, six months? Like I, I don't know what the exact date is, but – is, is that too quick of a turnaround? Like, I think Nina's putting herself in this position because she wants to fight. She's got some pent-up aggression. She wants to put it uh, out on the cage. Might as well get paid for a fight. So I think if the fight stays standing, she's going to have success. How does Dern get this fight to the ground? She'll have to do something she's had very little success doing in the past. So I can't bank on that. And the fight does hit the ground. I don't think Nina's a fish out of water. Again, she's got the best training partners at her disposal. And she routinely trains with, again, her, her, her wife, who's a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. It fights at 45 and 35 is massive. If Dern gets on top of her, she'll be okay. Enough to survive, and then she's got to keep the fight standing rounds two and three. Don't drop these early rounds. Just keep her honest. Keep it standing. It's a bit of a stretch to bet Nina Nunez just because of the child, the layoff, 35 years old, I believe. But I think that it's like live underdog play. The Because we're looking at props here, though, the prop that I would look at is this fight goes the distance at minus 155. Nina answer off by decision plus 205. I think that, again, she's got to keep this fight standing, use her striking. We've seen people beat Dern stand up. Dern's tremendous on the ground. But this fight, every fight stays standing, and that's hopefully where it's going to remain. Last thing I want to sprinkle on is Dern's super hot, right? So it's, like, easy to get behind her and be like, you wish you could get behind her. I mean, obviously none of us can. What I'm saying is it's easy to, like, get behind the, the narrative of, like, oh, she's going to go far. The UFC wants to market her, this and that, right? this, that, and the other. And you look at those wins, right? Yotter, Amanda Cooper, no longer with the company. Hannah Cyphers, no longer with the company. Ronda Marcos barely clinging onto a job at this point, has a losing record. 
Vernon Jandranoba, you know, it's a very favorable matchup for Mandaribas, you know, just, just got exposed a little bit in her last fight. Um, that that's, that's a, a lower level of competition. Nunes looked decent against Suarez, all things considered. The Claudia Gadelio fight, yeah, gave up takedowns in the first round and then just grinded on her and just absolutely beat her pillar to post rounds two and three. Put a clinic on Ronda Marcos. Outstruck Angela Hill, which, by the way, that ain't no easy task. Like, that, that's a much higher level of competition. So I get layoff. I get child. I get all that. But she's operated at a much better level than Dern has. She's got the skills to win this fight. I think she's a live underdog. No, I like it as well. Um, it's a very tough fight. It, it does depend on what kind of Nunes we see when she enters that case that night. I do want to give a quick shout out to our guy. Uh, don't even want to try that first name by Herbert. New parents parlay. Nunes plus Perry is plus 310. Go for it. <laughs> Go for it. See what happens. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got three fights left. Again, I do want to remind you guys, we got close to 220 people watching this thing live. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe. Best way to support the show and let us know you guys want to keep us around. All right. Next up, we got Sam Alvey versus Julian Marquez, and I labeled this shit show number two of the night, right after Jorgen Castro and Jarjus Daniel. Uh, we got uh, Julian Marquez coming back after uh, just under two-month uh, uh, turnaround where he went out there and had the slobber knocker of a fight against Mackie Patolo. Uh, I should say slopper knocker because that one was just, goddamn, both guys getting rocked, hurt, reversed, just absolutely sloppy fight there. Uh, Mackie Patolo was probably... 40-something seconds away from getting a judge's nod there, unfortunately for him. MMA gods are like, nah, dog, not not tonight. And James Krause. James Krause, <laughs> exactly. James Krause was like, nah, dog, let's, uh, let's get that sub. Let's get that anaconda choke. And that's exactly what Julian Marquez does. But he very much underwhelmed me in his return. Obviously, he had a long layoff after he had uh, lost to Alessio DiCarico, a ton of injuries, you know, back and forth stuff that he had to go through. But he did come back, gets the, get his hands raised. And he, I'm sure he wants to just get back on the horse, right? Just just get these fights under his belt again. It's clear. It's weird to think that he only has, uh, I believe it's only four fights fights in the UFC considering he's been with the UFC for as long as he has, right? He has, uh, sorry, three fights with the UFC and that one fight with Phil Haas on the contender series back in 2017. So he's been with the company for four years and he's only fought four times. So yeah, I, I understand why you want to get back into the cage, but that fight was crazy, man. He took a ton of damage in that fight. And I'm not sure if this is the fight you want to come back to that quickly. Sam Alvey, uh, albeit, you know, Owen five in his last five fights, not to mention that that draw, sorry, so 0-4-1 in his last five fights, um, still has some power in his hands. Ask Ryan Spadden, who was on wobbly legs at the ending of that third round. He's able to still clip these guys with that lead right hook of his and give these guys some trouble. The issue that I have with Sam Alvey is the fact that he just stays on his back foot. So right off the bat, he's already at a, at a disadvantage in terms of the judges' scorecards because he's the one moving backwards. He's more than willing to let his opponents uh, control the cage and have that advantage over him. But he throws decent output to the point that he's keeping that kick out there. He's always battering the lead leg of his opponent. And then he's always throwing out that lead right hook that has a ton of power on it. That if he lands on some of his opponents, they could probably go down. Julian Marquez, pretty solid chin. But man, he was so sloppy in his last fight that I feel like they have Sam Alvey lands one of those. He could probably, you know, give him some trouble there. But I'm just not sold on the Julian Marquez side of things yet. I want to see him uh, perform properly. Like, great, it was great to get an anaconda choke after sloppy, such a sloppy fight there. But he was probably going to lose on the on the judges' scorecards that night. And we've seen, even though uh, Sam Alvey, you know, went to a draw last time around, I thought that the judge who scored that 10-8 for Daun Young was out of his mind. I thought Sam Alvey did a good enough job to at least warrant 10-9, uh, you know, a 9 there rather than the 8. And he would have won that fight by split decision. And then the fight before that with Ryan Spann. Closer fight than it should have been, right? Ryan Spann coming in as a minus 350 favorite. Sam Alvey gives him all he can handle and then eventually almost finishing him in that third round. 
Uh, so I still think that Sam Alvey has some left in the tank. And then I, I went to the, the topologies and I'm like, how old is this guy, right? He's, he must be like 39, 40 years old. He's 30 fucking four. How the hell is Sam Alvey 34 and you have 48 fights? The guy just keeps fighting. I remember he used to be like the, the new age Cowboy Cerrone where he was taking a fight every two months in the UFC and he was just not saying no to anything. But uh, th this, this fight is just so tough to call. I am leaning with the dog here though. And it's weird for me to say that because I just don't like picking Sam Alvey to win. But Julian Marquez did nothing to really uh, impress me last time around other than his resiliency and his durability. But Sam Alvey is a much harder puncher, in my opinion, than Mackie Patolo. And I think his takedown defense will force Marquez to keep this on the feet. And uh, this will be a, a fight where they pretty much trade in the pocket. And I'm actually going to trust the power of Sam Alvey a little bit more. I know he got knocked out twice by Nogueira and Jimmy Crude over three or four fights ago. But I still feel like he has the durability. I feel like he'll be able to stay in the fight. And I think he's going to put it on Marquez, even off of his back foot so i'm going to take sam alvey um i think the ko is slightly live even though marquez hasn't been knocked out plus 635 is a decent line but i think ultimately it's going to come down to a decision so sam alvey by a decision plus 370 not too bad fight starts round three minus 130 not too bad either uh i actually wouldn't mind that that's probably my favorite prop of the of the of that of this fight is minus 130 on the fight starts round three how do you see this one yeah again this is another fight where you're really gonna have to see the weigh-ins so sam alvey's coming back down to 185 yes. pounds I'm glad you said that and where that is definitely the best weight class for him i think he's gonna have one hell of a time making it you know we can make the jokes about mike perry's got a kid now and nina nunez got a kid now sam alvey got like six, six or seven kids so many kids at some point it's just like he is a kind of a bigger guy like i i've met him i drove him back from well i wasn't even driving but we shared the same vehicle him and chris curtis a couple of the guys shout out to my boy rodzilla but yeah it was like a three-hour car ride from lethbridge down to the calgary airport and he's super candid super great guy you know he seems like a likable character on tv super likable guy in real life but i remember we we're just talking to him shooting the shit and uh, rod's like man how, how big are you like 215 220 and he's like yeah about 225 he's funny i'm middleweight at the time so it's just like he didn't even look fat. He didn't look out of shape. It's just he is a he is a big guy. He's one of the head coaches now at Dan Henderson's training camp and Temecula, the former team quest. He's got all these kids. His wife won like season four of America's Next Top Model. Like he's got other shit going on in his life that he comes in. He beats Sugar Rashad Evans. Terrible fight. One of the worst fights you've ever seen in your life. But he wins a split decision over Evans. And now it's like, dude, this guy might be moving into like top 15, top 10 maybe. They give him Ramazan Amiv. He misses weight. That's his last fight at middleweight. He comes in at 189. After that, he's on record being like, can't make middleweight anymore. Goes to 205. The last seven fights have been at 205 pounds. He has not looked good. Now at age 34, now he's suddenly going to cut the 20 pounds. 205 to middleweight's a big jump, man. It's a two-weight class jump considering, you know, the difference between 35 and 45 is 10 pounds and 45 to 55, 10 pounds. Like most weight classes are 10-pound jump. He's making this 20-pound jump. At 34 years old, having previously missed that middleweight back in 2017 when it was a lot easier, he's just too big. And so one thing universal with Sam Alvey is he's got that power, no doubt about it, but he doesn't let his hands go. He quite literally just watches the action unfold. He's a counterpuncher, doesn't do shit. The Dong Jung fight, he actually did something, but Dong Jung was routinely running head first into these counters from Sam Alvey, making him work, drawing the best out of Alvey. Alvey was also on a four fight losing streak, backs up against the wall, might get cut. He at least let it fly. He deserved to win that fight. Glad he did. I faded him in there. I was I was happy to get the push because I didn't deserve it. But like, if that's if that's Alvi's one last one, like if that's Alvi's the best that he can offer, like it's just it's just not quite enough. Now, is this a winnable fight? Absolutely, this is a winnable fight. Julian Marquez looked terrible his last time out. But keep in mind, Julian Marquez hadn't fought in two and a half years. 
He was coming off two major surgeries to repair, repair a latissimus dorsi tear, which is like a lower back injury. A lot of people, doctors told him you'll never fight again. For him to come back to the UFC, yet crazy. Ring rust, cardio is going to be an issue, but he worked through it. He got rounds under his belt. James Carlos gives him the advice. He goes in, he gets a submission. Dude's this close to nailing Miley Cyrus. This close. <laughs> this close. But a concussion probably, you know, endured in the course of the fight with Maki Patolo causes him to make a counter demand. Stupid, stupid, stupid. You see, that's outer ring IQ. It's not yeah. ring IQ. It's outer ring IQ. He's clearly got none of that. But I'm hoping the ring IQ is good enough that it's just like you just need to brawl in spots with Alvi, back him up against the cage. Taking him down is a hell of a task, man. He's got really good yeah. takedown defense. Holding him down even harder. So this is predominantly going to be spent striking. And Marquez is not a great striker. He's a little bit robotic and stiff himself. He's just got to outwork him. And I'm hoping that James Krause has got a magical game plan together that revolves around just like playing to Sam Alvey's holes in his game. But again, this is a prop show, and I love me some decision props. So I think this the over one and a half, minus 190, fight to start round three was minus 130. I think this is getting two rounds in. It's going to the third. We got a minus one thirty there. Over one and a half. I nothing's free money, but I really, I do really like that. I guess one ninety. I like that play. And then if you want to get saucy on it, that Marquez by decision was plus two sixty five. But I, I prefer just to hit a couple of those overs and not necessarily bank totally on Marquez, who let's be honest here did not look good his last time out. But the quick turnaround would suggest that no injuries, motivated to get his career back in track. And that, that would be good for him. Having just fought deep into the third round and submitting a guy and now jumping right back into camp and jumping right, right back, that's going to help the cardio. That's going to help your timing. That's going to get the ring rust off and hopefully get you back to where you need to be. And this is a fight that's winnable against Alvi. But again, the main thing is here, watch the ways tomorrow and see what Alvi looks like if he makes weight at all. Yeah, I think you you got to take into consideration the fact that he's going down to 185. He damn well knows his job is on the line. If he loses this fight, he's probably kicking the can and, and going over to Bellator or whatever it is. So he's probably trying to tap into that 185 success that he had or somewhat success that he had to, to try to prolong his UFC career. And again, only 34 years old. We're probably going to see at least five or six more years of smiling Sam Alvey. I'm sure he wants to join the UFC rather than some of these other promotions. All right. Let's move on to the co-main event here. And this is easily the fight I am most excited for. We got Sadiq Youssef going up against Arnold Allen. Uh, closer uh, odds now. Actually, well, now it's minus 145 for Sadiq Youssef, plus 125 for Arnold Allen. And I'm not a big fan of these types of fights, but at a certain point, they're going to have to happen. You have two streaking prospects, two guys that have been making a great account of themselves in the UFC against decent competition. And now they're on, you know, they're, they're at a crossroads. They're at a point where they're fighting each other now. One of these guys gets to go up. But even if somebody loses this fight, whoever loses this fight, I don't think they'll fall too far down the ladder as both guys are very, very skilled. Now, I, I I like the style of both guys. Sadiq Yusuf, obviously a very big puncher, has a lot of sauce on his shots, uh, is able to really mix it up well with his big power combinations. Uh, and then Arnold Allen, on the other hand, not as, uh, you know, not as willing to throw as many strikes, but he's so defensively sound with his striking that he only has a or he has a 67% striking defense rate, which is one of the better ones that you'll see in the UFC. But that's just him not overextending on his punches or going too crazy with his output because he's able to stay at in the pot or stay in his comfort zone, get away from the big shots of his opponents. But he moves so well from his boxing stance that he's always on balance that you don't really see him ever get you know slip or ever off balance to the point where an opponent can just push him and get him off balance he just keeps the center of gravity so well uh and his boxing combinations are quick crisp right down the middle 
And, uh, you know, more often than not, they do some solid damage on his opponents. Now, he doesn't have a knockout victory on his UFC record, but he has dropped down and dropped two guys, Jordan Rinaldi and Yatsen Meza. Far cries from striking uh, guys like uh, one Sadiq Yusuf. And that's the big part here is that this is the first time he's fighting a guy that has this type of skill in the striking realm. Uh, the closest guy is Gilbert Melendez, but that's a ghost of Gilbert Melendez and what we used to see in the strike force days. But the confidence that he showed in that fight to go out there and land 100-plus strikes on Gilbert Melendez, sure, that is a further attestment of the fact that it's the ghost of Melendez. But he did it with such swagger that he just put it on him and just didn't really look back and just did not give him any respect in that aspect and was able to just put it on a great clinic. My issue with Sadiq Yusuf is a couple of things. Possible durability issues, right? He has one loss in his career, got slammed, KO'd, sure, whatever. More often than not, when you slam somebody and they their head hits the canvas, they're probably going to go out. Uh, but he has durability issues. Mike Davis rocks him numerous times in their fight. G Gabriel Benitez rocks him in their fight. Obviously, he has the wherewithal to recover and win the Mike Davis fight by decision and then win or beat Gabriel Benitez by knockout in the same round that he got rocked in. So there's got to be a, a method to his madness, right? But Arnold Allen is probably the cleanest striker that he's fought to this point in time. A guy, again, that doesn't overextend on his punches, that will probably frustrate Sadiq Yusuf when he's not able to hit him, and then probably catch him with some good counters, and possibly find that chin of Sadiq Yusuf. Again, no knockout victories in the UFC, but I still think that he has the precision to hit a guy like Sadiq Yusuf and possibly cause him some troubles here. And then lastly, the main thing that I have an issue with Sadiq Yusuf, taking that round three off against Andre Feely is not a good look at all. That was the worst showing that I've ever seen. I don't care if your coach is telling you that you're up two rounds. You don't cruise like that. And that's either confidence issue, that's a that's a cardio issue, but I think it's the cardio issue at the end of the day. And the 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 amount he's going to probably tax himself by swinging at air against Arnold Allen is probably going to you know tax him even more the later this fight goes on. So I am leaning. On the Arnold Allen side, I like the plus money on him. I think the most favorable outcome for him would be the decision prop, which is currently at plus 225, which isn't a bad line. I'm expecting this fight to probably go 15 minutes. But the, the slight possibility that Yusuf does slip up, and Arnold Allen has great cardio. He's going to be going from minute one to minute 15. If he sees Yusuf slowing down in minute uh, in the third round, he might try to capitalize on it, try to find that chin of Yusuf. And I'm not so, and I believe that Yusuf's chin will crack in the UFC. And this is a solid fighter for it to possibly crack against. You're getting plus 865 on Allen to win by KO. And given the durability issues that we've seen from Yusuf, I think that's a decent prop. Um, just a little bit of a sprinkle to see if Allen can find that chin and capitalize, which where other fighters were not able to capitalize on. So I like Allen here. I think the most likely outcome is decision. So plus 220 is not too bad. But if you want to get a little frisky with it, plus 865 on that KO prop is not too bad either. I have a feeling you're on the other side. So bring me, reel me back in, buddy. Reel me back in. Yeah, well, I was the other side. It's not like this is a super confident play by any stretch. I think that I really like Ardenal, and I think this would be a good fight. But here's here's my here's my biggest issue there, right? So Sodiq Yusuf's got pretty good takedown defense. Prior to the Andre Feely fight, he had not been taken down by anybody. Andre Feely did successfully take him down three times, but he sees the ability to get back up. And team, training out of Team Lloyd Irvin, like I don't think submission defense is a problem. I like what I see out of him. It comes down to striking. Arnold Allen also is not really big on offensive wrestling. He prefers to strike as well. So if we get a striker versus striker battle here, right, we know what Sodi Kusev could do. We know what he's capable of. We know what the level he's operating at. Here's my problem with Arnold Allen. His wins, and this is in a row here, Nick Letts, not a striker. He's an old-timey veteran grappler of the division, former D1 guy. Likes to use his jiu-jitsu a little bit. we got Gilbert Melendez, a shell of a shell, who is a 
you know, a wrestler, you know, old timey veteran wrestler type guy. We got Jordan Rinaldi. Okay. Jordan Rinaldi. I mean, he prefers to wrestle. He tries to little grapple, not really a striker. You got Mads Brunel, who's absolutely a one dimensional power grappler. By the way, he loses the first two rounds against Mads Brunel, but eventually he's able to rally and submit him in the third round. We got Maquan Americani, you know, again, who's a you know, one dimensional wrestler, actually has no striking in his game. He's a uh, luckily, to, he's lucky to squeak by a split decision over Amir, uh, Americani. Yautzen Maitza, right? Not not a striker, MMA lab guy. Likes to likes to try to mix in a little bit of grappling in this game. And then you got Alan Omer, right? So he actually loses the first two rounds against Alan Omer and submits him in the third. Doesn't look good in that fight either. He's literally fought a plethora of just like old timey power grapplers and guys that just prefer to get these fights to the ground. And how does he beat them? He's, he, he outstrikes them. Okay, cool. Has he ever fought a striker? Has he ever fought someone who's a high level striker? No, no. And so the problem with Sodi Yusuf is like he got rocked by Mike Davis. Shit, it's Mike Davis. You know, like he, he he's been Gabriel Benitez. Shit, it's Gabriel Benitez. He's fought in good guys. He's fought in good strikers, and it's like he's getting the best of them. He's got big power. He's got sharp, refined technique. If he does get taken down, he's got his ability to get back up. Cardio, like you said, could be an issue. Taking off the third round against Feely, questionable. Not fighting. He has. He's been off fifteen months now. And he actually pulled out of his last fight due to an injury, right? So that's all—that's not all good stuff for sure. He's 27 years old, man. 15 months on the sideline. This guy could come back as he was already a beast to begin with. If he comes back the same man, he's going to be a hell of a problem. Arnold Allen needs to mix in the re- the wrestling, although he just doesn't really show it in a whole lot of his fights. So that—that's my issue here is that if he doesn't get this fight to the ground, he's striking against Sodi Yusuf, and he's really shown us. I haven't seen him strike with a high level guy like that, a high caliber guy like that. So for that reason, I have to go with the, what I do know. And that's Sodi Yusuf prevails in these tight situations. And I hope he does again here. So the spot again, and I really don't want a whole lot of exposure on this whatsoever, but uh, you mentioned that it was like a crazy price that it was like, Oh man, maybe Arnold Allen gets the KO. It's not quite nearly as good of a price, but that Sodi Yusuf KO was plus three fifteen. Only reason I would bet that is that we've never seen Arnold Allen against a high-level striker. So maybe he's not going to fly with passing colors. And you have us, but again, this thing could be close, tight-nipped. Arnold Allen hasn't really shown durability issues. He hasn't really shown cardio issues. Kid's got a hell of a heart on him as well. There's just a lot of variables. So there's 14 fights on this card. I want to pick the spots I'm most confident in. And this is a hell of a fun fight. This is one hell of a co-main event. If co-main events were five rounds, like they were talking about doing, Arnold Allen looks even better, but the official pick is going to be a Sodiq Youssef. And if I had to pick a, a prop that I like most on it, I think I would go with that plus 315 just to get saucy. Yeah, no, I, I'm very much looking forward to this fight. And like you said, like the main thing about the Arnold Allen side of things, we've never seen him fight a striker like this before. So that we have to see him pass this test before we can truly say, okay, he's a legitimate striker and can actually take on other strikers himself. All right, that brings us to our main event. And I do want to remind you guys, we got 230 people in here. This is the new home of Propping You Up. Make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe, hit that notification bell so you guys know exactly when we're going live, whenever we go live. Because tomorrow night, I'm going live as well, 9 p.m. Eastern with a new crew of guys. Brady, DFS by the numbers, will be joining us tomorrow as well. Shout out to Brady, big, big fan of his. So I can't wait to do something with him. But he'll be on the show tomorrow, as well as Newsom from uh, MMA Play 365 and John Stargarian MMA from Club Club and Sub. Following week, I got Clint from Die Hard MMA Podcast coming on. I got, I got MMA Prediction Guru coming on. And I got Bleed coming on. 
Cody will be on in a very short few weeks. I promise he's going to be on that panel as well. It's gonna like, exactly. It's going to be like old times, baby. So 9 p.m. Eastern odds is not around anymore, but your boys have you covered. So appreciate the support as always. All right, let's get into this main event for you guys. We got Marvin Vittori taking on Kevin Holland, who just fought Derek Brunson. Uh, I believe it was March 20th. So just under two or three weeks ago, uh, he went out there and fought um, uh, Derek Brunson and put on a very underwhelming performance uh, a, and a performance that pretty much made everybody say, fuck Kevin Holland. Everybody was all over Kevin Holland until he fought Derek Brunson and decided that he would rather fight for fun than chase titles like the rest of these guys are exactly his words right after this fight had com uh, completed. Now, I don't want to completely shit on Kevin Holland, right? When the fight was on the feet, as somebody that had a plus 150 ticket on Derek Brunson, I was biting my nails. I'm like, Derek Brunson, please just take him down. Stop fucking around on the feet. Take him down, and let's just secure this as much as possible. So Kevin Holland was still competitive on the feet, but then, man, he just could not do anything with that jujitsu black belt that he apparently has because he could not get off of his back at all. He couldn't even create space. He couldn't do get submissions up there or anything, or at least on a consistent basis. And Derek Brunson was able to just lay on him for the majority of five rounds. He even goes back to his corner at one time and says, Coach, I know. He's just so heavy. <laughs> of course, these guys are going to be heavy. You think Derek Brunson's heavy? Have you seen my guy, Marvin Vittori? You seen that guy over there? Ooh, that man is a heavy man. Now, normally, Marvin Vittori goes out there and just tries to outstrike his opponents, you know, be the brute, get in, get in their face, stay in front of their face, get, get some big combinations off. But I wouldn't be surprised to see him go out there and pull out his wrestling singlet. You want to go out there, try to get this fight to the ground, and just wear on Kevin Holland. He's definitely going to be the stronger guy here. I think he's definitely going to be the more powerful guy. I think his shots might have a little bit more sting on them. And the longer this fight stays on the feet, the more of a chance Marvin Vittori is giving Kevin Holland to win this fight. But I think that that's where Vittori wins this fight. I, I think it ultimately comes down to the mental of these guys. And what you hear from Kevin Holland last time around saying, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to have fun. These guys are trying to chase titles. Who's chasing the title the most in the middleweight division? Our guy, Marvin fucking Vittori. You don't want to be slacking at all against a guy like Marvin Vittori. So, yeah, I completely understand why the odds makers have Marvin Vittori all the way up at minus 345. It makes absolute sense. But let's not completely dismiss the skill set that Kevin Holland does have. He has a good striking game. He has some good pops on it, good pop on his shots. Like his performance against Joaquin Buckley where he lit him up for around two and a half rounds and then eventually laser just dropped him with this laser of a right hand. He does have that capability still. But Marvin Vittori is very durable, right? The guy went a solid three rounds against Israel Adesanya and made a pretty good account of himself. Um, even here against Kevin Holland, I think he's going to have the advantage with the heavier and more impactful shots, being the stronger guy in the clinch, getting the fight to the ground, and just absolutely smothering Kevin Holland. So I, I like Vittori here, but I'm kind of torn on the method of victory. I'm not sure if he'll be able to ground and pound him and get him out of there. Um, the Vittori TKO is plus 345 or if he wins this fight by decision, but the decision prop is the one that I'm leaning on the most, plus 175. I think that's that's the spot if you're looking at back of Vittori. But even though over-unders are not too bad here, if you have access to those websites that have the alternate over-unders, over one and a half, minus 235, not a bad spot. But the one that I like the most, over two and a half at minus 135, I think that is an amazing spot. I don't think we see an early finish from either guy here. I think we see this get dragged on. I think we see, you know, again, Vittori probably clinch fucking him for a good part of that fight, or at least just controlling the striking to the point of you know not getting knocked out again uh marvin vittori great durability but uh on the other side with kevin holland again it's just a little bit hard to back him especially after that performance again we can't write off what uh holland has done up until this point just because of that Derek brunson fight but it's just not a good look 
I think that Vittori is going to be able to win this fight pretty much anywhere that it goes. The black belt in Kevin Holland's back pocket does not look good as fights pass, especially after that Darren Stewart performance where he's laying on his back for the majority of that third round. Couldn't get up at all. And then Derek Brunson as well. Can't get up off of his back there. I'm going Vittori. Ultimately, I'll go by decision, but it wouldn't surprise me if we potentially see a uh, Vittori you know, TKO finish round three or round four, just overwhelming him uh, on the ground with some ground and pound. How are you seeing this one, buddy? Yeah, listen, I like Marvin Vittori a lot. I'm absolutely sold in this kid. Uh, he's got everything going for him. Durability for sure. Self-confidence, cardio. He's got just everything's moving in the right direction. You got to keep in mind that this is a kid that came from the Italian regional scene and just immediately sets up camp at uh, MMA Kings, right? Or Kings MMA, sorry. And it's just right away, it's just like he clicks with, with his environment. And you see a lot of improvements coming out of him. Rafael Cordero obviously trained, working with guys like Benil Dariush on his ground game, working with guys like Kelvin Gaslam and Anev. And you see a lot of improvements out of him, but it's that self-confidence. The guy's no doubt got an anger problem. He's a fucking raging maniac. And no better than when he tried to fight Carl Roberson in the hotel because Carl Roberson pulled out of the fight with an illness. It's like he just wants to get in there and he just wants to compete. He wants to fight the best guys. Absolutely gets after it. You talked about he fought Israel Adesanya to three rounds. Yeah, he's not shown durability issues in any of his fights. I've actually watched him live, his first uh, loss in the UFC against Antonio Carlos Jr., UFC 207 in Vegas. And he's getting taken down by Carlos Jr., who's a very good BJJ black belt. But at no point is this kid flustered. It's just, it's a bad fight for him. Works his way through. Right, beats Vitor Miranda. The Armari Akhmedov fight. Why is that fight a draw? Because he gives up the first two rounds, right? Bad ring IQ doesn't get quite going, and then thrashes him bad in the third round, gets the 10-8. So it's like cardio's not an issue for this kid. He's growing, he's getting better, right? Fights it Adesanya. It's a split, should have been a split decision, but just goes to show that it was competitive. One judge thought he won. Cesar Freire, Andrew Sanchez, Carl Robeson, none of them are names. So he's low-key floating under the radar. Minus 150 versus Jack Hermanson, I thought was a total gift because I'm huge on Vittori. Vittori first round, looks like a million bucks. Vittori second round, looks like a million bucks. Vittori third round, he loses the third round. At this point, it's like, oh shit. It's the first time he's booked in a five-rounder. I, I thought he you know, looked great in the third round against Omar Akhmanov. I didn't think cardio was an issue, but this is the real gut check performance. You're in a fight with a top 10 guy, Jack Hermanson. He's dangerous. He gets this fight to the ground. He's got good cardio. He's durable. He's got all these intangibles. This is a tough fight. You're headlining for the first time, and now it's 2-1 going into third. The live betting line actually came right back down. It was really bettable again for Vittori. What does he do? He goes out there and he takes control of things in the fourth and fifth. And that's what you want to see out of a young fighter is making those adjustments, having that faith, going in there. Maybe he took the round off. Maybe he did, but it was all part of the plan. And the plan worked extremely effectively. So now the UFC's got a 27-year-old kid. He's good looking. He's in tremendous good physical shape. He's durable like we talked about. He's willing to fight anybody. You book him in a headlining spot against Darren Till. Winner of this fight conceivably could get a title fight. Winner of this fight is in for you know a big high-profile fight their next time out. Till falls out, you get Kevin Hall. Kevin Hall is just wrong place, wrong time. I, I would bet Marvin Vittorio over the majority of the guys in this division, right? Kevin Hall, and he's just, his path to victory is he catching them, right? That's what he does. He catches guys. But, like, catching Marvin Vittorio is going to be a hell of a problem because he's got a cast iron chin on him. If you don't knock him out, you're going to have to go some rounds with him. And that's a problem for Kevin Holland. He got mad tired in the Darren Stewart fight, right? Loses the third round, Darren Stewart gives up takedowns, looks very tired. Him booked in that spot, you know, to headline his last time out against Derek Brunson, you know, the narrative is like, oh, well, maybe he'll extend Brunson to some later rounds. But he himself is on record being like, I want to be the co-main event king. I don't want to fight for a title. Like, he's more more a showman more than, like, seriously after it. Don't think he's got five-round cardio. The later this thing goes, the more it favors, 
it favors Vittori. But even off the get-go, the, the ace in the back pocket is the takedowns. Just go to the wrestling. But beyond that, I think he could just back him up, use his striking, back him up, push him backwards, be the aggressor, have great success with the striking, and then just mix in that takedown. So I got Marvin Vittori. The money line is obviously pretty pretty accurate, I think, but we're looking for props, and there's some better props than there is money line. The over two and a half rounds, minus 135. I like that. Kevin Holland is a pretty durable guy, right? You see him go through the motions with Brunson over the course of five, so at least he can, even when he is dead dog tired, he's still fighting. If you can talk shit, you can still fight, you know, yeah. you, if, if you're still, talk, even when Brunson had him in that arm triangle, I was like, I'm thinking, because I got Brunson, but I also have Brunson, I had uh, the over, over two and a half, over three and a half. I was like, please don't choke him out with this arm triangle, Derek Brunson. <laughs> and he's, he's still like, man, fuck you, man. <laughs> he's, he's, still like, <laughs> he's still talking shit in the middle of this arm triangle. You can get a little air. You can talk a little shit. You can breathe. You can breathe. You can fight. This guy just fights on. He is very difficult to put away. Unless you're Thiago Santos. And let's be real. You know, Thiago might do that to a guy or two. And Vittori, you know, not big on finishes himself. Another guy that kind of just goes through and gets these decisions. I think he'll have a significant advantage in the later rounds of this fight, maybe late third, fourth, and fifth. But as far as this first prop goes, over two and a half will be all right. Over three and a half, I like that as well. It's plus 100. And the Marvin Vittori decision, I know you already mentioned it, plus 170. Five rounds is a long time. 25 minutes is a long time. You know, betting a, a five-round decision prop, again, tough. But with Holland, if you know this guy's not going to do nothing off his back and the takedown's there for you all night, that's going to slow this fight down. As far as the striking goes, Vittori can take a punch, but like, why bother? Why, why, why brawl with him? Why not fight the smart, the smarter path of victory? And with Kevin Holland, you know, in that right go before the fifth round, after the fourth, he's in his corner, and they're like, Kevin, this is what you need to. And he's just like, guys, guys, I know, I, I, I know. But he's basically telling them like. Nothing I can do about it. He's Nothing so like, heavy, coach. He's so heavy. <laughs> I know. To me, the, to me, that's like a real. You can you could officially never bet on Kevin Holland ever again. Scratch that. If he rematches Charlie Ontiveros, is Charlie alive, <laughs> dude? Does anybody got a confirmation? He's still in the hospital, bro. He might still be in the hospital, dude. He definitely had a a dislo As Mike Tyson would say, he broke his back. Uh, yeah, tough, tough go. Okay, I would bet him over Charlie Ontiveros in the. Outside of that, you know, Jacare two for two in the takedowns. Brunson was six of them. You go down the whole list, you know, Gerald Mearshart was six of them. Again, there's another third round uh, where he's just completely exhausted. The Darren Stewart fight, he makes Darren Stewart look like Jordan Burroughs. Like, come yeah. on, man. Like, there's just way too many red flags there. So I, I can't get behind him. What I do like here, I'm going the over two and a half, the over three and a half. Fight goes the distance, essentially. But if you're going to take that, just go Vittori by decision. Uh, you t you talked about that round three against Jack Hermanson for Marvin Vittori in terms of, you know, you're kind of shitting your pants like, oh, is he having a cardio dump or something like that? But the, in a five-round fight, you can afford to take one round off, especially if you won the first two rounds. And that's what I think he was doing there. You can't be Sadiq Yusuf in a three-round fight taking one round off thinking that you won the first two. Um, but when you have th two more rounds after that, of course, you're trying to conserve your energy to put on the performance that he did in those fourth and fifth rounds against uh, Jack Manson. So yeah, uh, I'm glad that we're both on the same side here with Vittori and we are both taking him by decision. Holland is quite durable. Um, plus 175, not too bad of a line, considering that you're getting a, a minus 235 uh, on that money line for Marvin Vittori here. All right, let's move on to pretty much everybody's favorite part of the show is the three best bets. As always, I will kick things off here. Uh, the first prop bet that I have is, you guessed it, Jack Shore, round three, plus 1,500. Your boy had to do it. We had uh, Marc-Andre Barriot headed for us uh, la uh, the last event, hoping Jack Shore is able to kind of string this together and get us another big prop plus money shot. 
Uh, so yeah, I like Jack Shore to break Hunter Azur starting in that second round. Uh, competitive first round. It will be a competitive first round, but trust me, do not lose faith in Jack Shore. He will eventually break uh, Hunter Azur and then eventually get that third round finish. So plus 1,500, you bet your boys all over that shit. Next up, uh, Griffin via submission plus 490 over Luis Saldana. I think that's a very good spot considering that Griffin will have the distinct uh, grappling advantage here. And I think that Luis Saldana isn't the greatest off of his back either. Plus 490 for a, a guy that chases the submission as much as uh, Jordan Griffin. Yeah, give me a shot there. He hasn't had the greatest run in the UFC up until this point, going 1-3 and three in his last four fights. But this is a perfect matchup for him if he is successful in getting it to the ground, which I think he will be. And he's going to be searching for that sub. So plus 490, I'm right there with you. And lastly... I got to go Arnold Allen KO plus 865. Again, you, Yusuf has some durability issues. Never been knocked out in the UFC. Has that one knockout loss via slam earlier in his career. But he is getting rocked by Mike Davis. He is getting rocked by Gabriel Benitez. And I think Allen is the cleanest striker out of those guys that he's fighting. But again, this is another big, big step up for Allen too. It's the first time he's fighting a guy with the striking uh, credentials or striking acumen of Sadiq Yusuf. So it should be a, a fun fight to watch. But I felt that prop was a little bit of an outlier considering what we have between both of these guys. All right, Cody, you're up. What do you got? Yeah, well, starting things off, we got a nice little plus 100. Danho DeCastro over one and a half. Okay, yes, two guys, 265 pounds, big guy. One guy's known as Man Mountain. Uh, but it's like, okay, I, I think that this one's going to be a, a slow bog of a fight, that over one and a half plus 100. I think it's going to get at least a couple rounds in before they start to tire. Both guys are, are fairly durable. So we're going to start off with that. Then we're going to move to a little... Plus 105, that's right, that's right. But two scammer up by decision. I, honestly, I call him like Polish GSP. This guy is the complete, <laughs> he's the complete well-rounded package. The difference is George had world-class ring IQ, but two scamera still has to make a few adjustments to his game. If he doesn't have a slow start, he's an absolute problem. And I know people call it like lay and pray or blanketing. The actual term is winning. Gamrot knows how to win. 17 and 1. I mean, that tells you all you need to know. Contentious split decision is last time out being that only pro loss. I think he gets back in the wing calm. I think he does so by decision over Scott Holton plus 105. And then it's like, okay, I need, I need to get a big one here. I mean, Locke's always that was showing me up with these <laughs> plus 59, plus 490, plus 865. I need something. We're kind of on the same page. Uh, short by submission at any point in the fight is plus 310. I agree. I don't see it happening in the first. In the second, would still be pretty difficult. His best pass is to just absolute grind his opponent down and pick it up in the third. That's what makes that third round prop look, you know, extra nice uh but i'm just gonna go straight up by jack short by submission plus 310 hope that it happens at some point in the course of the 15 minutes and it would still be a nice three to one plus money play all right those are our three best bets for the ufc card that we have coming up this saturday i'm very excited for it we had one week enough we did have bellator to kind of hold us over but it's good to have the ufc big show back in town here uh but yeah these are the best three uh prop bets that we have for the upcoming card let's hope that round three prop for Jack Shore comes through for us and we can uh, have back-to-back -back UFC events where we actually have it cash for us. For those of us who have actually stayed this entire two hours for us, we're going to give you one quick last gem. One last gem. Somebody, a couple of people were asking for it during the beginning of the stream. We want to give you a quick Bellator prop to, to take home this uh, this coming week or tomorrow night, I should actually say. The one that I like the most and it's probably going to shock a couple of people I like me some Lyoto Machida by KO at plus 550. And I think that's a little bit of a stretch. A lot of people are going to be like, what the fuck are you smoking? Machida's 42 years old. What are you thinking? But 
I am not overly impressed with what we've been seeing from Bellator, or sorry, from, uh, I, I should say, Bader or Bellator Bader. I'm not overly impressed where he's just knocking out King Mo Lawal in 15 seconds, where he's finishing a, a broken Fedor Emelianenko in 35 seconds, and then grapple fucking Matt Mitrione. When he finally fought a true test as somebody that was, you know, somewhat viable and somewhat could keep the fight on the feet, he gets knocked the fuck out. Now you give me five rounds of Leota Machida, whose durability seems to be holding up as of late. And can still, you know, lull him into that trap that he lulled him into over eight years ago, nine years ago. I still think that uh, Leota Machida has the ability to knock out Ryan Bader. And again, Ryan Bader just got knocked out in his last fight. So yeah, I'm taking a little bit of a shot on Machida by KO at plus 550. Even as an underdog, I like him in that plus 250 range. I think he's a solid spot for tomorrow night. Cody, you got anything lined up for us, or am I am I jibber jabbering a little bit too much? Yeah, here? no, no. Listen, they haven't released props for all the fights. That's kind of the problem with Bellator is they'll release it for, like, say, the main card. Everything else, you got to bet it straight up. But in terms of, like, they, there's some really nice parlay pieces on this card. Cody Law's not losing. Dalton Rose should be able to go have his way. This Jalen Bates looks really good. I've already tweeted out, like, my parlays. But in terms of one prop that I do like on the show, Jeremy Kenny by decision on plus 140. So Adam Borix is a total beast, no doubt about that. But his takedown defense is not that great, and he allows himself to get controlled up against the cage a lot. One thing about Jeremy Kenny, he's very physical at 145, and he will just stick on you like glue over and over. Loves to grind guys up against the cage. Even if he doesn't get the takedown, he's more than comfortable enough just pinning you up against the cage and working you over. Borix, for as much as, like, you know, he's got that win over Aaron Pico where it was like, holy shit, this guy is for real. It's the follow-up fights since then where I've have been trouble getting behind him. Darren Caldwell, just, you know, world-class wrestler. But you see where it's like, oh shit, his ground game needs some work. Then the Mike Hamill fight. We all just seen Mike Hamill fight uh, Uzman Nurmagomedov over the weekend. Dude, he was very, very lucky to get a split decision over yeah. an MMA lab journeyman. Very, very lucky. And then he follows that up with that, that his last performance against Eric Sanchez. I, think, I thought he looked shaky over another untested commodity. Jeremy Kennedy's young. I believe he's probably the second or third best Canadian fighter currently going behind Hakeem Duwadu at number one. And, like, who do you put second? Gavin Tucker? He just got knocked down <laughs> in 20 seconds, right? It so doesn't look good. It, it doesn't look good. It's a big drop-off from number one, <laughs> right? And Hakeem is not even top 10 in the UFC, and that's our number one guy. Yeah, It's not, it's not that impressive. What I'm saying is Jeremy Kennedy is, is, is a is a very good fighter. He's got good control. His wrestling's good enough. He's a strong enough guy. He's training full-time in Las Vegas for this fight. I, I think that this fight goes the distance. I think Jeremy Kennedy might be able to pull it off. So as far as the money line goes, it's close. But as far as that prop bet, Jeremy Kennedy by decision is plus 140. If they were to release, you know, other Bellator props, I'd be all over it. But they know the squash matches. Oh, yeah. And they know, they know a lot of these are going to be first-round, second-round finishes by way of the guy that's a – three-time state wrestling champion out of Pennsylvania, right? Like, gets the guy from the pub down the street. <laughs> you know what? There's a great example, and I know it's not a great price tag, but I think it's currently 580 for this Cody Law kid, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, and I'm a huge fan of him. So right, right from the get-go, Bellator signs him, and it's like, okay, this kid was an absolute stud wrestler, right? He's at American Top Team now. He was at the University of Pittsburgh um, during his collegiate career. As an amateur, he's undefeated. He's 5-0. and He smashed everybody they put in front of him. He debuts for Bellator. And he's a minus 385 favorite. It's like, geez, that's not bad. This guy's this guy's the man. Second fighting is Kane Champion. And I'm I, I know Kane Champion is very well aware. He's a minus 900 favorite. You just see that what Bellator is doing here. They're setting him up to win these fights. This Nathan Garib fight, man, if I had more time, I'd tell you all about the story about his last opponent, Zach Johnson, who beats in 54 seconds. But it's like they're, they're, these guys are not operating on not even close to the same level. Cody Law has a tougher time in the parking lot of ATT getting in the doors than he's gonna <laughs> than he's likely to have in this fight. So it is a fist fight. Anything can happen. 
But like Bellator is not willing to give you juicy props and shit like that. Uh, anyways, dude, always a pleasure. Uh, yes. Again, if we had more time, I could do a whole hour-long episode on exactly what happened with Oz.com. But ultimately, they were good to us. I got no vendetta against them. Shit happens. But we were able to roll with the punches, as you have to do sometime in this industry. And it's awesome that you're able to uh, put this up on your platform for now. So, yeah, we'll see what the future holds. But the main thing that I believe will stay consistent is you and me, man, Thursday nights. Let's hammer out some props. Let's keep doing our thing. Say hi to the rest of the gang for me. I'm going to miss them. But again, the world's a crazy place. Things happen. And, and I'm sure that we're going to meet up with those guys down the road. I know you're going to have them on your channel. And I'm sure I'll be working with individual members. Or hopefully we get all the cast down for some type of reunion show at some point. But uh, the fans have been the consistent through anything. Guys come. Guys go. People make picks. People fade out of this game. But uh, these guys come back. They support the show. They support us. So nothing but love. Thanks for taking the time. Exactly. No, it definitely showed tonight too, right? Everybody came out. We are peaking at 240 viewers. So we people are definitely noticing that we're not on odds anymore. Odds is not dropping content anymore. And uh, this this will hopefully be the home of a lot of new content. But obviously, we have other things in the works that people will definitely be able to look forward to in the near future. But trust me, me, Cody, Guru, Bleed, all these guys are going nowhere. Even uh, even Clint with his Dire podcast, he's already on uh, Pub Sports Radio, so he's holding it down over there. So trust me. Odds may not be around anymore, but we definitely are. And we're glad that you guys are definitely around uh, on Thursday nights here with us. You guys showed us tonight. Hopefully you guys show us again tomorrow night with the, the ultimate win show that we're doing on my show, uh, my channel. But thank you, Cody. We're going to keep doing this on a week-to-week -week basis. Once again, uh, you guys can follow Cody Twitter uh, on Twitter at CJ Slavtik. You guys can follow me at MMALOTN. Make sure you guys like and subscribe. And I'll see you guys tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, for the ultimate win show. Let's get it. Good luck on your best this weekend. See you guys tomorrow and next week, 8 p.m. Eastern. Me and Cody doing propping you up.